Welcome to Extended Clip, episode 37. I'm one of your hosts, Eddie Averill. I'm Malcolm Baum. I'm JT White. Wow, that was weird because we're in a different seating order than True. usual. Yeah. And I almost thought JT was going to go second this time. Whoa. It's Extended Clip, VIP lounge episode. We are in the VIP lounge. We rented out um, a, uh, a suite, you know, mm-hmm. at the, uh, the Ritz-Carlton downtown LA. Overlooking the city of stars. I'm bracket. I'm I'm digging into a baguette and a glass of wine right now. <laughs> this is Hollywood's biggest night. I opened the mini fridge and I just dumped that shit out. <laughs> um, no, we are coming to you from Studio C, I guess, my uncle's house yeah. <laughs> that I'm staying at right now. Um, but yeah, this this week is uh, the best of the decade. It's one that we've been anticipating for quite some time. It's a big episode. Oh, mm-hmm. shit. I thought this was breast of the decade. So <laughs> I just have a list uh, with 10 names and it's all Mia Khalifa. Yeah. <laughs> good thing. Yeah. Good thing I have that private letterbox list of all my favorite tits and movies <laughs> yeah. over the past 10 years. Because I didn't know that this was the episode, but you know, I'm prepared nonetheless. <laughs> Uh, so what we're going to be doing is uh, we, we took a little p- a poll. We mm-hmm. uh, surveyed some friends of ours. The inner ring. The creme de la creme of film <laughs> Twitter. <laughs> no, just like we had our past guests and a few other people who have either written into the show or, you know, talked to us about it or, mm-hmm. you know, future just guests. Future, future guests, guests, friends of the pod. If you weren't invited, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Uh, just uh, like, sit on it. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Uh, so I guess let's just throw it to uh, one of our friends to start us off. Uh, hello, boys. This is Clint Eastwood, your friend with my top ten films of the last decade. I made a lot of movies this decade about real heroes like Jersey Boys, the story of the making of Goodfellas, and hereafter, the story of a little boy who saw heaven. But I wanted to point out some of my other favorite films, such as Eighth Grade by (laughs) A24. I like A24 because they are intersectional AF And they are also goals. I also liked the film The Farewell by A24. Aquafina is my spirit animal. Another film I liked was Obvious Child by A24. A pro-abortion woke comedy another film I recommend The Last Black Man in San Francisco a movie every white gentrifier should see by A24 my last pick is Midsummer by A24 a horror movie about every guy women date in their 20s thank you wow thank you so much clint eastwood damn that was a big poll yeah i know i'm glad clint finally returned our calls um I, i'm 
I'm speechless. Yeah, it was such an honor to have him on. Um, he does he does make an appearance on I think all of our lists individually. Although I don't believe he shows up on the big list that we're counting down. It's a fucking shame because Clint had a crazy fucking decade. It's true. Um, I think it's just like he made so many good movies that people didn't know which one to true. vote for. When the yeah. answer is Sully, but dang, yeah, I was. I wish I got a Sully rewatch in. It might have been up there. Who knows. Um, so yeah, if you want to reach out to Clint Eastwood, he's at Nate Media Good on Twitter, and uh, he was also on the podcast like a couple months ago to talk about Trailer Park Boys. So, as I said, we took some top tens of the decade from our friends of the pod, and uh, we also took our own top 20. We get more picks because it's our fucking podcast. We run the show. And uh, yeah, we, we have compiled the results. I worked all day tallying <laughs> i do it like on tally marks too like one two three four and then the line through it classic um probably the best way to do math wouldn't have it yeah, any just other written way. on the wall <laughs> um so indie wire called this the decade that changed everything thoughts on that yeah i mean <laughs> i was 10 when the decade started <laughs> and I've, I've actually grown a lot since then i've gone through puberty um a lot of firsts happened so yeah, it is. This decade really has changed everything. What about you, JT? Um, I mean, like to to legitimately approach uh, something about it, I I feel like there is like, um, when I was compiling my twenty, I think, um, it was like uh, it, with a list. I always you you wanna you wanna spice it up. Of course, it's like it's not as it's not about making it true to life. It's like you want you want some flavorful picks. You don't want it to be boring. Um, and I feel like a recurring theme for me was like, I don't know, innovative like things with auteurs like tackling digital uh, in this decade. I feel like that's a recurring thing that pops up. And I don't know, it's just a good decade. I, I think so too. Mm -hmm. And I agree with what you said. My list is a good mix of people who have been making films since the 70s uh, approaching you know the late master phase of their career and people who made their debuts in the last decade or two uh, really you know furthering the exploration of their career and uh, yeah it's an interesting weirdly transitional decade obviously it ends with you know stuff like the Irishman that wouldn't exist in the beginning of the decade just in mm -hmm. terms of like a distribution method and True, yeah. you know who would fund it and stuff you know we see the other Marty films that I think every Marty film other than Hugo from this decade received at least one vote mm -hmm. uh, in our poll. Most of them got like three or four. They're, you know, thrown together like a lot of films you see at festivals by a handful of production companies. You know, they have big budgets, big enough to use crazy uh, visual effects that are unseeable, I guess you could say, in Wolf of Wall Street or something mm -hmm. like that. Uh, and to cast, you know, DiCaprio and people like that. Uh, but, you know, it's like, as I said, like when you go to a film festival and the film starts with a full minute and a half of like production company titles uh, because people are having a hard time getting movies made. The studio system as we knew it, even, you know, not the classic studio system, yeah. but the big movie studios who would bankroll guys like these are kind of floating by the wayside. And a lot of them are... Uh, Still doing really interesting stuff, thank God. Yeah, yeah. everyone just wants to make TikToks now. <laughs> True. I mean, there's some movies on here, like, by some directors, we might not ever see him do a full-length feature again. Like, I don't know if Michael Mann will ever make a feature-length movie again. Who knows? Like, Jeez. It's, that's it, a, that's it, a grim <laughs> fucking take. I, I mean, it's... I mean, he's he's got that pilot coming out. I, it's just... It is... 
It's something to consider. It's been a minute. Yeah, yeah. It's been a minute. And it, Black Hat, well, we don't need to get. We'll it. get we, to we, it we'll in like an it. hour. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Strap in. <laughs> this one is probably going to be long. Just wasn't a money maker, I guess, as well. So yeah. Um, you want to just get right into the list? Yeah, I don't really have any grand statements in my <laughs> mind. Uh, number twenty-five. Uh, we just talked about it on our best of the year list. It's The Irishman, twenty nineteen. Martin Scorsese. We just talked about it. Go listen yeah. to that episode. <laughs> yeah. We just talked about it like a minute ago. Yeah, it's as I said, a very strange film in terms of like Marty's career trajectory. But it's also, from an auteurist standpoint, in terms of the journey of his career, makes kind of perfect sense. And I love that he has a new Western in production, even though this feels like such an elegiac film, if that's how you say the word. I've mainly only read that word. Mm -hmm. It has, you know, that tone to it, that very slow, subdued style that drags it out to that three and a half hour runtime. Uh, and it's just, I don't know. It's, it's a masterpiece and everyone's been talking about it since November. So why do I need to say anymore? It's definitely not Marty's final film, obviously, but it's one that like really feels like it is. And just like when I was coming up with my list, I knew one of his movies was going to crack it. Um, but it, it, for me, it had to be this one just cause it's like, I, like like you were saying earlier, um, he's had such a strong decade, but I feel like this uh, just most effectively like is a summation of his career and sort of what he's been building towards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what's interesting about this, it's kind of in conversation with um, some of the more popular aspects of his career, but like kind of hearing reactions to it by some people who kind of just not exactly film heads, just kind of novices. It's a very intimidating film you know three and a half hours very slow i mean it's a very like it's it's a great like statement film almost and like Mm -hmm. it's it's pace and just the way it carries itself is just very admirable and on like the level of the scope of the Mm -hmm. film and what it is kind of trying to figure out about american history in the 20th century Um, It kind of is like the capstone of this 2010s project of his, which has been very historically based. I mean, he's Mm -hmm. made period films throughout his whole career, but when you look at something like Shutter Island, which is really like his big, the effects of World War II on people Mm -hmm. from then until now kind of movie, and on the Holocaust specifically, Uh, and then The Wolf of Wall Street, and you have this, you know, fucking hellhole of finance bros uh that 30 year period of history up till now uh and then this one just like the mid-century uh crime and labor and politics and their intersection Mm -hmm. it's pretty wonderful and like from a stylistic perspective although it's more slow and subdued it's a formal masterwork that doesn't call attention to itself in the way that scorsese's formal prowess usually does Mm -hmm. yeah 24 is a film by the Coen brothers, who I feel like we've never talked about it on this podcast. Yeah, that's wild. Have we even given one Coen opinion on I don't the Coen so. brothers? Let's yeah. not. Let's skip it. Yeah. Well, I didn't <laughs> see this no. movie, so I could oh, I could shit. hold this... I could hold my tongue. You, you haven't seen number twenty four, Inside Lou and Davis? I haven't seen some of the movies on this list. <laughs> <laughs> I Inside Lou and Davis was a big pick for me. And yeah. like I mean the Coens also have had a really strong uh decade. Again, doing sort of like the auteur like adopting uh digital distribution like marty um with buster scruggs 
and like oh they, they hail caesar was this decade as well i mean not like a digital distribution one of my was, favorite coen brothers movies yeah um for me i had inside lewin davis pretty high up there i mean i feel like it's a lot of it is like an intersection of like interests like being really big into like folk music of that particular era um like i don't know makes it a very very personal i think it's like one of their more personal works in terms of just like their fascination with certain uh, icons of history, such as Bob Dylan, obviously, in this mm-hmm. movie, uh, is kind of like the ghost that travels through this movie. Well, and also, like, Lewin Davis is, like, directly, like, based on Dave Van Ronk. Yeah. Like, sort of the forgotten folk uh, figure of that decade. Yeah, no, exactly. And it's like, he he has his own career, and then it's kind of dwarfed at the end by that, you know not actually Bob Dylan, but Bob Dylan thing at the end. I don't know. It's a really depressing movie in that regard. It's just like about artistic expression, but not, he never has the catharsis that movies about artistic expression usually have. Uh, It's just like a movie that is about being on a beaten down path and not being able to get out of your own way. Kind of. Yeah. Especially like, Lewin throughout the whole picture sort of ruminating on the loss of his partner Mm -hmm. that he was originally doing folk music with. It's just like, I mean, it's really funny throughout all of it. Like, especially like, uh, John Goodman's like blind, uh, like jazz man, uh, just a weird eight minute short film in the middle of this movie. (laughs) You've guys caught my interest on this. Check this out now. He's only, he doesn't like come back. He's in it for a short, it, it has been, four maybe five years since i've seen this movie but uh he's only in it for like one long scene right or like one 10 minute segment yeah i don't think he's in it for too long um but there's like these moments of comic relief but it's just like watching lewin who like is like not like not a good guy but it's just like still sympathetic enough where it's just like miserable watching him get beaten down (laughs) and like ultimately like someone who's like a legitimately good like folk musician yeah, and also I think in terms of the Coens just going in different directions than usual, uh, like this is their first one without Roger Deakins, I think, in over a decade or so at that point. Uh, and I think the cinematography here is really, it's very cold and uh, very like, I don't know, it's much more, uh, I don't even know the word to describe it in comparison to what Deakins usually does for them. Because it's so hard to nail down what Deacons does for the Coen brothers because, you know, they've done so much different shit together. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the visual look of this film and, like, the textures that it brings and how much that contributes to the tone uh, is kind of an anomaly within their filmography. My favorite Coen brothers movie is Miller's Crossing. <laughs> Hell yeah. That's a good movie. It is a good movie. The hi-hat? You're giving me the hi-hat. <laughs> <laughs> That's a... I love that shit. <laughs> let's Number- name. Oh, sorry. Let's name. If anyone died in any of the movies we're naming on this list, let's give them a quick R.I.P. Quick <laughs> sign of the cross. Unfortunately, we won't be able to keep up with that. Yeah. And our number two on the list, uh, that in memoriam segment, would take five minutes probably. <laughs> <laughs> Spoilers. Um, number twenty-three. The number twenty-three. Directed by Jim Carrey. <laughs> I knew I knew this was going to make an appearance on this list. We've <laughs> talked about this movie off mic so much, and how much it really means to us. And even though it's not from this decade, it's it really about this. this yeah, decade. it's about this decade. 
So it's on the list. Where it's it like Southland Tales in <laughs> yeah. that regard. You know? <laughs> Southland Tales being a film from the 2000s that you could say is the best film yeah. of the 2010s. Uh, but you'd have to give that to the number 23. Exactly. But no, uh, a similarly twisted film is number 23, Welcome to New York oh. by Abel Ferrara. I forgot the list order now, so I'm like, I'm su- every time you name a movie, I'm like, all right, what is it? You know, let's get <laughs> no, into yeah, it. No, yeah, I'm surprised yeah, yeah. by our list too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, this, if you're not aware, is the not Dominic Strauss-Kahn movie. Yeah. Um, Parentheses. It, yeah. The movie they don't want you to see. <laughs> the American cut, 20 minutes shorter. Coincidence? I think not. I don't want to go too deep into the ramifications of what that means about like uh, American film producers and distributors, yeah. uh, which is like probably obvious, uh, has been been demonstrated over the last couple of years with one of the big ones uh, but anyway well the big to- kahuna as we like to call it. <laughs> we got him folks uh oh no have you been reading any of the coverage from uh, the trial yeah it's depressing yeah it's pretty bad we're talking about weinstein folks yeah, yeah. Uh, the weinstein stuff pretty bad yeah pretty bad uh number 23 though is welcome to new york uh it is like a movie about sexual assault mm-hmm. and it opens with 25 minutes of consensual sex uh, with sex workers and Gerard Depardieu uh, grunting and face fucking his way through Abel Ferrara's cold and sterile frames. It's the most like it's consensual sex that just borders on being non-consensual by just how awful it is. <laughs> it's disgusting. It's disgusting. It's complete psychopathy on the per- part of uh, the Depardieu character who. You know, he's a French politician. He's Dominic Strauss-Kahn, but he's not Dominic Strauss-Kahn. Parody. He's Dominic (laughs) Strauss-Kahn. A Phil Werrell, if you will. Yeah. And uh, you watch him come to New York on business and just is flooded with prostitutes and like a sex party. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he then, after that long night, um, the housekeeper comes into his room to clean up and you have a graphic scene of him sexually assaulting her. Mm Mm-hmm. And then right after that, now this is where the two versions of the film diverge. And this is like what's important because it's what the film is about. And Mm -hmm. it's so damning of uh, like American film distributors and like the American film culture that this difference in the cut would be made. Mm -hmm. But the American cut is, you know, it's like 15 minutes shorter despite having 13 minutes of new footage, which is very strange. Very strange. It does not show the sexual assault quite yet. It shows it later as she's describing it in a flashback in order to discredit, um, you know, the witness, which is like you could make the case that that is an even bleaker reading of the scenario because, Mm -hmm. you know, to spoil the movie, as it were, the case is dismissed because of lack of credibility, which Mm -hmm. is an awful, heartbreaking, you know, Mm -hmm. just disgusting thing to see. So, I don't know. I, I mean, like, the the director's intended cut, Abel Ferrara's European cut of it that's unrated, uh, shows the assault right after you see 25 minutes of him having sex. And it's just like, I don't know. It's just one of the hardest things to watch. No, yeah. And it's it's very honest, you know, commi- you know maybe even uh, in conversation with maybe some of his past films, because, you know, Abel Ferrara loves to show the sexy images. He oh, likes yeah. to show... Indulging in, in the sleaze. In the sleaze. And, you know, he indulges in the sleaze in the most, you know, distasteful way possible and then, you know, has a sexual assault and, like, is kind of, like, 
saying like this irresponsible there's a connection between these irresponsible sexual behaviors you know yeah. this is a product of something even greater and i don't know i i think as as far as political films go like this the politics the way that the film um presents his politics is something much more interesting and like subtly didactic in a way where like you know vice and has people talking directly to camera or like mm-hmm. big short where there's a one scene where this happens and welcome to New York, and it's very impactful. And it's, it, uh, yeah, I just think it's a better way to do it. Yeah, the one direct address to camera is shocking and like just fucking turns your stomach over. Turns your stomach over, and it's it's at like the perfect point in the film too. Yeah, and I mean, what a a god tier performance performance by Depardieu, who oh completely like his main tool is his grunt and his belly. <laughs> Yeah, he grunts his way through this movie. There's one really long scene of once he's been arrested mm-hmm. um, and is being held uh, by NYPD. He's given a cavity search by two security guards uh, or prison guards. Mm-hmm. And it is such a long scene of him getting undressed and then redressed, played out in long take, you know. And just like the the sound design, all the layers of him grunting and groaning just to fucking put his shoes and socks on is it becomes pretty funny and it's like hard to laugh because of the other stuff you've seen in the movie but it is one of the funnier scenes that i can recall yeah and he's being ridiculed i mean yeah no the security guards they're the prison guards are also making fun of him Mm -hmm. and it's like a weird thing where abel ferrara has shown you enough you know reprehensive stuff that you're on the side of a prison guard making fun of an inmate you know yeah (laughs) like uh uh for their physical appearance you know (laughs) I mean, all the abuse that, you know, regular prisoners get, it'd be much more well served to, you know, these billionaire, millionaire types. I mean, yeah, that's, exactly. That's who we would ideally like to see all this stuff happen to. Yeah. But um, also just, the, I mean, Ferrara's, you know, master and just the subtleties too, kind of like the way they characters switch between French and English just is very well in tune to like, I don't know, to like the world and like, you know, things at a, a greater scope just. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Also the like... I hate to say it again, but like some of the stuff when Depardieu is talking about sex in broken English, pretty funny. There's yeah. a very awkward scene where he takes his daughter to uh, breakfast with her boyfriend and is meeting her mm-hmm. and is like asking if he fucks her good and like, yeah, uh, just if he likes fucking and like, uh, you know, talking about making jokes about sex parties and stuff like that. And it's pretty funny. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I, you know, it's important to show too because it's like, you know, all these people, you know, they might be charming or whatever. I think there's a scene where Depardo fucks a prostitute and it's like, you love a womanizer, correct? Or something like that. Yeah. But it's it's showing that, you know, that, you know, just because someone puts up a good front. Well, you know, even though I wouldn't even say Depardo's front is great in this movie. But, yeah, it's just it's showing all the scope of it because it seems, you know, it seems like on paper this stuff he's doing at the beginning could be fun. But... You know, it's, yeah, it's very not. quickly, very like, quickly, you know, yeah. that this is a terrible, terrible, terrible yeah. person. And like, yeah, the politics of it, you could say that it's just like a blanket, you know, don't trust the elites, which at this point, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll take that. Yeah. Uh, but I think it is a, a, a better, it's better than that in the regard of like, you know, how bleak it is and how his lawyers are able to get him off by discrediting the witness. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the most depressing thing about it is totally. like the, the systematic, you know, distrust of victims and stuff like that is really bleak. And, um, Ferrara's late sober period 
is so incredible you know like it's not as formally audacious as the 90s in terms of like you know his insane cross fades like the long long lap dissolves he'd use and the digital intermediate like the different uh consumer grade digital shit that he would cut to but i don't know the way that he does this more you know cold and sterile uh version of his form in the 2010s is really effective for the types of stories that he's telling so you want to watch that one jt (laughs) Uh, i mean i like that's a a big blind spot for me is ferrara i haven't seen a single film of his and uh just the other day i was thinking uh probably some point soon i'm gonna start because uh i feel like there aren't a lot of like directors that i'm curious about where i haven't seen one so i want to start from the beginning and uh, oh yeah the whole way through so it might be a hot minute. Before yeah, you're going to gonna start with uh, Nine Lives of a Wet Pussy, his hardcore <laughs> <Yeah>. pornography. <laughs> well, <laughs> hey, best. That's fine by me. I haven't seen that one. I started with The Driller Killer uh, yeah. because Nine Lives of a Wet Pussy was not yet restored. <laughs> uh, but now that it is, I'm going to have to go back for that one for sure. Amazing title. Amazing title. One of the all-timers. Yeah. He is one of the best at giving titles for his movies. Uh, Our Xmas is one of the goats as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The way Welcome to New York like shows up almost as like a halfway title card in the movie oh my God. is amazing too. So, number 22 is a film that none of us have seen. I think it's the only one How on did the that list work? that whoa. none of us have <laughs> whoa, seen. Whoa, whoa. Get it off here. Actually, there's one more that none of us have seen. Uh, but one of our... Hey, fellas. So, I got way too high before doing this second take, so just bear with me here. But I... When you asked me to talk about one of the movies on my list. I decided to go with uh, La Flor by Mariano Ynes. Uh It's this just like, it, well, it's there's nothing else like it really, but it's this 14 hour art film made up of six episodes that are all different genres, all starring the four same actresses. And they were made like in collaboration over a 10 year period. So the, epic length film is just a culmination of all those efforts and I think that's kind of what makes it a decade defining work for me because it gives me that rush of seeing like Jacques Rivette for the first time where you kind of feel like everything is possible with cinema again because all these people come and put their heads together and despite their more modest resources which is just the reality of the industry now they like made this titanic work of art that's also just so entertaining so there's no reason to fear the runtime plus it's structured in a way that you can view it over as many days or breaks as you want really so you know if you can find it then definitely take the plunge uh, he didn't introduce himself, but that was Evan, and we're right there with you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> sounds good. Also, never seen a Jacques Rivette movie either. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, Rivette's great. Well, we're yeah. doing one next yeah, week, exactly. Right? Okay, well, we'll say that later, but yeah. So we're not even going to talk about that. That was number 22. Number 21. Oh, and yeah, Evan Amaral, he was on a great episode that we did, like, a I, I, I'm just going to say everyone's episode was a few months ago. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Fucking listen to it, cocksuckers. Yeah. Uh, and he is at Evan D. Amaral, I believe. Ugh, boy. Hope I got that right off the dome. 21. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Beautiful. 2019. Oh. Quentin Tarantino, baby. 
Gotta love Tarantino, right? This was one <laughs> a I, past guest of the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> this was one I was hesitant to like put on my list because I was like going back and forth, like especially like the Tarantino connotations. I mean, like Once Upon a Time has been talked to to death. Yeah. Um, but I like and like I get like a lot of the negative press around it, and I can definitely see like why people wouldn't like it. But again, this is something that had like such a personal connection with me because it's like so nakedly honest and personal and like there's that overlap with me and Tarantino of like a shared admiration of the decade and I feel like some of the dirtier and more reprehensible stuff that like people don't like like the last uh like I don't know 20 minutes um sort of the like his indulgence in his uh foot fetish uh like all that stuff is so appealing to me because it's like like the most like Jackie Brown in the sense where it's like nakedly honest and like loses some of that ironic veneer uh, that his other works uh, from this decade definitely are reveling in. And not like I don't like like any of those movies. I do enjoy some of them, but like, I don't know, this is so much more endearing because he's uh, laying his soul out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really feels like with this one, he kind of dropped the gimmicks, and that that kind of sounds maybe even like I'm down talking about. Like, a, yeah, I like some of the gimmicks too, but like this feels more impactful because they're gone. And yeah, I mean, he's he's really you know just really tackling with his just love of movie stars, and you know, as as great of a watch this is, like I think I've said multiple times, very rewatchable for me. But you know he's still throwing things in to make things a little bit difficult, a little bit ambiguous, and I don't know. It's just it really it really resonated, really spoke to me. Yeah, no, I I love this film so much. Um, only second to Jackie Brown in terms of Tarantino, uh, and it's yeah, it's the earnestness. It's like I could honestly cry at how much Tarantino loves what he's presenting. Mm-hmm. Uh, not to get into the whole, you know, depiction versus endorsement thing, but he loves everything that is in this movie, yeah. whether it's, you know, Brad Pitt slamming someone's head into a mantle or Charles Manson being racist or the existence of movies. Like yeah. he just like loves that it exists. Uh, and, you know, you can't ju- it's like maybe he has some stuff to work out with what he takes pleasure in. But I'm not here to judge him on that, really. Yeah. Uh, I think taking the moralist route on Tarantino 2020, come on, guys. Uh, <laughs> it's a dead end. It's Hang dead it up. <laughs> he proved you wrong. Yeah. Also, just like the casting of a lot of like Hollywood like royalty as like some of the Manson girls, too. Just, yeah. like, just great touches throughout. I mean, the details... You know, the details is re- really what makes this, too. Yeah, the recreation. People always talk about, you know, the recreation of the Hollywood streets and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And, like, Spawn Ranch, especially. That recreation's great. But I don't know, man. Just Tarantino shooting on a back lot of a movie studio is all you need. Like, Because totally. you know he's going to get... He's going to make it seem effortless and yet get the shots that encapsulate filmmaking more than anything to him. And like he does that so subtly in this. Uh, It's one of his most formally accomplished while also stylistically uh, like withheld kind Mm -hmm. of. Uh, you know, obviously he has some big dicked camera moves that he has (laughs) to put on there, you know, and Robbie Richardson, the God just like putting fucking cameras on the Mm -hmm. hoods of cars, you know, uh, the amazing cinematography of this movie is just, so many layers of like yeah. film history represented and um 
Yeah, I yeah. love it. I, I maybe should have ranked it higher on my list, mm-hmm. but it's one of the best films of the decade. I think it, everything feels so meaningful, too, because you still have those big dick shots, but I don't know. I feel the meaning, or I, I get the meaning more behind them than, I don't know, something in like The Hateful Eight. Oh, definitely. In The yeah. Hateful Eight, I love, as an experiment, you know, he's using the fucking uh, 70 millimeter super fucking scope and he's just like shooting in a cabin the mm-hmm. whole time and you know cinemascope really isn't known for its depth but he's really trying to make the most out of the depth of these cameras and he does a really good job it's not one of his best movies but i find it more entertaining on a pure like formal experiment mm-hmm. level than something like kill bill um anyway now we're done talking about tarantino forever yep <laughs> it's done um, number 20 is Mountains May Depart, the 2015 ah. film by Jia Junka. This is an amazing film. I just watched it recently, uh, mm-hmm. split into three chapters of three different periods of recent time uh, or of recent history, each represented by a different aspect ratio, which you could say is a gimmick. But I think uh, of all filmmakers, you know, Jia Junka can do like a formal conceit like that. And make it seem effortless and not gimmicky better mm-hmm. than anyone. This and Ashes Purest White, I mean, the way these stories are structured really get me going. I yeah. mean, that's... <laughs> no, uh, like, the way that that one uses genre and then, like, is... It sets it apart as its own singular thing, but this one, just through all... It's like his, you know... I... I I can't even fucking find the words to describe it because it's kind of like platform in the sense that it is that very like art house mode. You know, this is not Mm -hmm. like a commercial story. Yeah. But at the same time, it's supposed to be this uh, not global message. Hint, hint, you know, that is what it gets at at the third segment. But this message for all of the Chinese diaspora kind of Mm -hmm. and like uh, all of this history that comes before the film even starts weighing in on it, you know? Uh, And then you get to the third act where you are in fucking Australia and everyone is speaking broken English and globalism has ruined the world. It's one of the boldest like third acts of the decade. Ever. It's amazing. And I've read people say that it fumbles in the third act. That is horse shit. Yeah. Like the detachment and like awkwardness of the human interaction uh in the third act better showcases late capitalist alienation than probably anything i've ever seen yeah like it's literally the most alienating way to end your movie yeah uh and not even just like an ending it's the last 30 fucking minutes you know now it's been a while since i've seen this i haven't seen this since it got released initially but isn't there like something that isn't there something like his son, he's not able to talk to his son because he doesn't know yeah, his uh, dialect? Yeah, exactly. Like the the son that you follow t- on the third act to Australia, you know, while uh, Zhao Tao is back in China, you know, you, fo- you go with them to Australia and he communicates with his dad through Google Translate because mm-hmm. like he, you know, there's like lines in the movie that his dad says like, you can't even learn your uh, your father's Chinese, you know, and I, I, I'm, I would need to, you know, ask <laughs> someone with, uh, whether Chinese heritage or just like scholarship on that subject to like break down the different like dialects that are mm-hmm. used and like what exactly the distinction is, or if he straight up just does not know the language at all, you know, mm-hmm, true. um, but yeah, there, you know, I see people single that line out. I've, I've seen it like on Letterboxd or whatever, uh, where the line where he says something like, uh, you know, uh, like, 
something along the lines of Google Translate is my real father, <laughs> which is like, I, I don't know how it's actually worded in the film. I forget now. But, you know, that breaking of the realism into a more didactic tone is like, it's exactly what the film needs to do, mm-hmm. you know? And then it gets that perfect, just like magical last segment as you cut back uh, to China and you, with Zhao Tao, you hear you know, his, uh, his disembodied voice all the way from Australia. And then she leaves the kitchen and just fucking dances. Yeah. And it's one of the most amazing endings ever. I mean, in the, it starts with the dancing scene. Yeah. Too, it right? starts yeah. with to go West. Yeah. yeah. I mean, amazing. He has some of the best dance scenes of the decade too. Oh, jaw in the club, especially yeah. the club scenes in his films are fucking bananas. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think anyone knows how to shoot a nightclub scene like him other than maybe Michael Mann. Yeah. Uh, that's the only other director I would put in that league, you mm-hmm. know? I, 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 I can't say anything. <laughs> I, I really regret not rewatching this for the list because I feel like just talking about it now, I'm, I kind of forgot like how amazing it really is. Like, Yeah, no, I've just know. like had images flashing through my memory as we've been talking about it and just like getting chills mm-hmm. thinking about it. Uh, one of the best movies ever, honestly. Uh, I, I had it much higher than 20 on my list. I'll say that much. Yeah. Uh, 19 <laughs> is something I don't think any of us saw. Communists or a communist in by Jean-Marie Strobe, uh, mm-hmm. 2014. Do we have nothing to say about this? <laughs> yeah, no, I don't. I don't I've know. never watched them. I need to watch. It's been recommended to me heavily. I need to watch them. Or it's just it's just Jean Marie Straub, right? Yeah, it's one. well, it's I, it's after the death of Danielle uh, Huyer, yeah, and it's kind of a look back at their life uh, or their lives as filmmakers, and it uses clips, extended clips uh, from <laughs> movies such as Too Early, Too Late, and other Straub Huyer films that I have not seen, mm-hmm. so I did not watch this one. I'm yeah, sorry. Um, number seventeen. <laughs> no, sorry, eighteen is Hill of Freedom by Hong Sang-soo, 2014. Now, that's a banger right there. Also haven't seen it, but I'll let you guys take the wheel on This this. is another Hong that I haven't seen, so, Eddie, it's your time to shine. Eddie's soapbox corner. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we just talked about Mountains Made to Part in that third uh, act with the language barrier, and this is a big language barrier film. Hong's made a couple of these uh, where people are speaking English uh, throughout a lot of it, you know? And this one, uh, Ryukase, who is a supporting actor in a film that we'll get to later, he is a Japanese man going to see a woman in Korea that he had met before. And while he's there, he's just like too much of a beta to find her. He's trying, but he's not really trying. Yeah. And he's writing these letters to her as he goes. And the the structure of the film, uh, the structuring device uh is in the beginning you see him with these this box of letters that he's been writing on his stay. Uh, or no, you don't see him with it, sorry. She's receiving them. And she's walking down from where she got the mail. It was weird, like post office, but looked more like an office thing that she worked at. I was very confused by that the first time I saw it. I was like, why did her boss give her all these letters? <laughs> uh, but she falls and all the letters fall out of the box. And uh, one of them she doesn't see and it doesn't get picked up and the very rare use of a dissolve in a Hong Sang Soo movie folks if you know his movies you know his form he's not dissolving between fucking shots uh 
very important that one of the notes, uh, one of the stories of this vacation is missing, you know? And so she picks up all the letters out of order. And that is kind of the structure of the film is uh, his visit out of order, him trying to find her and meeting other people. And it's all presented, you know, in this shuffled order. And you also have a dream sequence uh, and you have all these great Hong devices, you know, mm-hmm. uh, just to make you have fun in your head, uh, drawing the st- narrative structure as like a diagram, <laughs> as I often do yeah. in my head while watching Hong films, uh, because it's very hard to like put my finger on what exactly he's doing. You know, uh, most of the time, all of almost all of his films have some sort of structural conceit that it takes me a while uh, or sometimes even a second viewing to fully understand. And this one, it's more straightforward, but it's a great setup for comedy. Um, one of the least sad Hong Sang-soo films, uh, especially now, like thinking about his last couple films that have been so fucking depressing, like Hotel by the River yeah. uh, and Grass was also very depressing. This one is maybe his funniest. And a lot of it has to do with like, you know, uh, they speak English because it's a Japanese guy and a Korean guy and they don't speak each other's language, but they speak English. So they speak their second or third language to each other. And so there's a lot of miscommunication through that. And Hong's exploration of language and how it's used and how, you know, people communicate in very drawn out conversations is brought to a very delightful point in this film. And it's also another one that I have very high on my list. So, yeah. Well, you really sold me on that, you know, give me the formal conceit. I have a little bit of history with this movie, actually. I've tried torrenting it twice, mm-hmm. and people weren't seating, and I had to, I just ducked out. You also need to be careful because uh, a lot of the movie is in English, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean it's all in English. That's true. And a lot of the films, uh, a lot of the torrents don't have subtitles, so it's it's a rough yeah. one. Uh, mine has, like, hard-coded uh, Korean subtitles, Mm-hmm. over all the english and then when they switch to korean i luckily have english subtitles okay there's Subtitle- also a very funny white dude who speaks english i don't know it's just funny to <laughs> see like a white short shorts hipster in a hong sang <laughs> <laughs> number 17 is jean-luc godard's film socialism 2010's uh experimental essay masterpiece about Taking a cruise with your boys. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I'm going to let's pause the pod for like 10 minutes. I'll try to think of a smart thing to say about this movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You can go online, read like actual smart critics about this. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a revolution in three movements. That's the pitch. Uh, you see people on a cruise ship. The cruise ship goes to some locations uh, throughout the Eastern Hemisphere, uh, north and south. Uh, you get some more stuff on the on the land you meet you know a little family unit who has like a a little election dispute a little iowa caucus uh little recount action (laughs) a little uh owning of the electorates the electorates yeah yeah um and then the third act you get a little tourism and you go to where the boat was going on the cruise and Mm -hmm. you see historical atrocities that have taken place uh and these injustices that have structured uh, the imbalance of these societies for so long and uh, it's a really it's bleak when you think about it like that but it's really optimistic when you think about the portrayal of youth in this movie totally yeah the kids and like the young girl like they're the ones politically with the power they're the ones 
demanding for clearer election processes. You know, mm-hmm. uh, as I said on Letterboxd, it's JLG's passing of the torch to the based Zoomers. Totally. And th- like thinking of the conversations you hear over here on the cruise, it's a lot of like vagueness and like kind of uh, undefined terms and like kind of yeah. like just like baseless political talk even sometimes yeah just a lot of like blunt yet abstract dialogue Mm -hmm. like a lot of Godard is and a lot of it is just quoting and like I don't know where the fuck they're quoting from half the time and then you get to a certain dialect and you're like oh I remember in the opening credits he credited Shakespeare this is the Shakespeare text he's quoting Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but I mean like with that uh, with the base zoomers it's kind of like that perfect marriage with like the digital experimentation yeah. that he's doing and I feel like because there's another Godard that will pop up later in our Ooh. list no spoilers uh, it's not but... the image book <laughs> <laughs> fuck the image book <laughs> I, I like the image book <laughs> um, but like he is like in such great conversation with like what you can do with like digital images versus film. And I feel like that lends itself to a certain optimism for passing the torch where it's like, he is one of the great auteurs like provoking, like, I don't know. I think Godard in this decade is really showing like that there are like so many new possibilities with digital that are in, that you're incapable with doing in film and it's just so exciting to watch this like old pro uh, experiment with that and diverge in such interesting and compelling ways, even though they're like kind of weird, insane, almost incomprehensible essay. Films. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the club scenes of the, the decade is just, oh, seeing, yeah. just seeing the club via cell phone footage and kind of Godard, Godard passing the torch to the Zoomers, but also kind of starting a Zoomer trend of like, you see like a meme and it's just really loud and bass boosted. Oh like, yeah, yeah, exactly. There's a term for it, I won't say. But uh, um <laughs> <laughs> but I it's <laughs> I don't know. Ear rape. But uh, oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um you happy now? <laughs> I have never actually even seen that word, so yeah. No, yeah, I haven't. Uh, so you know, I am I am I'm I am more bass zoomer than you guys. Yeah. <laughs> you gotta get it off those intellectual dark sites. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's Godard Godard meme making in 2010. What will become in I don't know, like 2017 or something like that. Yeah, but it is a really you know community uh, of filmmaking based film. You know, like mm-hmm. his crew uh, actually boarded the cruise on its previous uh, voyage without Godard. He sent them to go get used to the cruise ship. Uh, know all the nooks and crannies, you know, learn how to shoot the cruise ship and all that it entails. And, you know, you're switching between maybe four or five different types of uh, digital cameras when you're on the cruise ship. I I mean, it could have been more than that in terms of cameras, but four or five different qualities of digital cinema. And I don't know, to me, it's kind of funny to imagine, you know, this crew of just like French guys, like French people just like shooting on a cruise ship with like old uh, camcorder like handy cams <laughs> like yeah i'm doing a guitar movie you know? yeah. I just, <laughs> one of the, one of those cameras i feel like is definitely like a flip phone cell phone camera I yeah feel like yeah oh the really harsh one yeah. that he cuts to in the club often is that yeah yeah uh and then there's also definitely like the flip video camera yeah. i feel like makes an appearance in there I'd, I'd love to get a lowdown on all the equipment used on that flip camera the camera of my youth that's hey man they said it was the future of filmmaking <laughs> Me and Godard knew at the same time. <laughs> Just another connection we have. 
Um, but yeah, I think like the way that he invokes old film footage and atrocity footage yeah. kind of both is like, I don't know. I think it's more urgent than in the image book uh, or in some of his other essay films. And I think it has a lot to do with the middle section where you're meeting these young people mm-hmm. who are getting politically if not politically active, uh, becoming politically aware and Mm -hmm. asking the questions that lead it to it. And, you know, you could be a bitter old guy who was around for the new left movement in the 60s uh, and say, oh, it didn't work, uh, blah, 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 blah. You know, you grow up and you become a conservative. (laughs) Or you could learn from your fucking mistakes and try to do a new, new left. You know, like you could help the actual young people who are going to need a better society to live in. And I think Godar, like people give him shit politically a lot, which is very strange to me because he's one of the only filmmakers who's put in that much time of a devotion to left cinema, uh, trying to rebuild cinema back from the ground up with the Ziga Veritov group. But anyway, uh, I digress. (laughs) Film socialism is the film we need right now (laughs) and it's it's he kind of you know even like it is a passing of the torch of the new left generation but even kind of bridges you know between film and digital i mean one of the shots of the decade is the boy painting the renoir oh my god you get the you you see him painting the renoir and then you finally get the reverse shot of you see the painting itself which is very well painted and then you get this yellow digital color corrected sky that matches the landscape in the image Amazing. And in classic Godard fashion, right after that, the little boy asks to grab the grown woman's ass. Oh, my God. <laughs> yes. Yes. He's just like us. He loves the highbrow and the lowbrow. Yeah. <laughs> With that being said, uh, number 16 is Right Now, Wrong Then by Hong Sang-soo, uh, the 2015 masterpiece. I'm just going to be calling everything a masterpiece <laughs> yeah. from now on. <laughs> well, yeah, Hong is like, he is the pimp of this decade. He oh, yeah. The only, he has three films. On this fucking list. Yeah. He has like seven on mine. On my like top hundred. It's just, you know, mostly Hong. All uh, the ones you've seen. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. No, I've seen all other than the one that's coming out now. I'm very hyped for the woman who ran. Yeah. Uh, but right now, wrong then. Talk about the, what's the structural conceit of that one? What What's what's the gimmick? <laughs> the gimmick is that we get a date. We get a date served two ways. <laughs> A date is a dish served two ways. <laughs> two ways. One kind of a more normal but still kind of somewhat bleak depiction of a of a date. And I'm being very vague. Yeah. <laughs> and then and then the second one is kind of you don't even know if it's worse or better, but it, stranger things happen. Yeah. It's you could say there's a bit more openness in the second one. Yeah. You could yeah <laughs> you still don't know you could you don't claim. know the objective truth you yeah. don't know what's really going on in these people's heads mm-hmm. uh and that's the great thing about hong you could watch two characters talk for eight minutes twice and still not get a read on like what they were actually trying to get out of that conversation you know mm-hmm. and so it, it is a date and it's a hong sang Su date so they drink soju they talk it's in long takes that once in a while uh will kind of ozu style uh, cut outside to a, a a pillow shot, if you will, a nice comforting shot, and then just cut right back to that conversation from you know a slightly uh, zoomed in angle or a different angle. The takes run as long in this one as any of Hong's, I'm pretty sure. Uh, the scene where they're at the bar, uh, 
real descriptive for a Hong San Su movie. Uh, but when they're talking at a bar counter and, you know, one character is much closer than the, you know, partially blocking the other one. It's greatly framed, of course, mm-hmm. slightly off center to get both faces fully in frame. Um, that scene, I believe, goes on for eight or nine minutes each time, which is ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, the ending is just like really kind of heartwarming weirdly mm-hmm. and it has the music from hill of freedom at the end the movie theater where she's sitting down the music that plays over it is hill, the theme from hill of freedom so i don't know is she watching hill of freedom <laughs> <laughs> is that hong sang su yeah <laughs> uh hey is this guy hong sang su making characters that are slightly based on him <laughs> <laughs> who knows I mean, this movie also just captures just how embarrassing it is to date. Yeah, it's <laughs> Go on dates, like, one it's just... of the funniest, most embarrassing movies in yeah. his filmography. Yeah. I mean, you before mentioned uh, the, a beta in Hong's films, mm-hmm. and that's like, he is just, that's the representation. <laughs> I know this is an alpha podcast, but we have to sympathize uh, with all the men struggling in Hong films. <laughs> Number 15 is Vitalina Varela by Pedro Costa, 2019. Any of you guys see this one? Wish I did. Nah. Yeah. I, I did just catch up on Horse Money, oh. uh, which the titular character of this film co-stars in. Um, Horse Money is very bleak and also very beautiful, and uh, I'm not prepared to talk about it. But yeah. <laughs> you know, also, I've, I think I haven't seen like half of the movies discussed so far. It just shows what we're the pod of the people. We take the people's opinion and we value it highly. This is a we socialist just put podcast. It out there. Dude, yeah, yeah uh, film, socialism, communists. Those are two movies that have appeared on the list so far. Look, we're trying to get in on this dirtbag left grift. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, if you listen to this podcast, you have you have part of the ownership of it. Yeah. <laughs> it's a political action to listen to this podcast. <laughs> you could put down your sign for the day <laughs> if you've listened to this. Um, before we go any further, I think, do you guys want to hear from another friend? Nah. No, yeah, sure. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, this is Ryan Swen, critic, host of the Catalyst and Witness podcast, and past guest on Extended Clip. Rather than talk about my favorite film of the decade, Marano Yinez's Staggering La Flora from 2018, I decided to talk about my fifth favorite, a lesser-seen film of comparable concerns and ambitions, Raul Ruiz's 2010 masterpiece, Mysteries of Lisbon. It's a four-hour epic set in the 1800s that's based on the novel by Camilo Castello Branco, and more than anything, it's just so pleasurable, and it just has such a grand assortment of characters, nested flashbacks from different viewpoints, and reveals of all sorts, including of identities, relationships, and parentage. All of this takes place amid lavish drawing rooms, and is shot by Ruiz with such beautiful virtuosity. The camera feels like it's gliding and reframing every single moment, every single shot. Narrative and revelation are the primary concerns, but every time it twists and turns, it seems to feel even more grand and expansive, and I just adore it so immensely. Thanks, guys. Can't wait to see and hear your lists. Wow. Uh, Thank you to Ryan. I've only seen one Ruiz, and it's not that one. But that one sounds very good. (laughs) Yeah, that's a a blind spot for me, Ruiz, but what I've heard from him, I'm very interested. We got to do a Mysteries of Lisbon... um, LaFleur double feature yeah. next week. <laughs> next week. Yeah. Yeah. We'll start right now and we might finish both films by the time. Um, thanks to Ryan uh, at Swen Ryan on Twitter. And um, he was on, he was our first guest yeah. way back yeah. in the day. 
Salute. Uh, that was a good episode too. That was, I think, still the oldest film we've done uh, with the Testament of Doctor Mabuse. Yeah. Uh, also, one of the best films we've talked about. True. Sure. Yeah. That one yeah. has stuck with me. Can't wait to get back to old movies. I know. Next week. Yeah. Fight yeah. this decade. Yeah. yeah. Next Malarkey. Week. <laughs> <laughs> I want old movies. You know, Gone with the Wind. <laughs> <laughs> Sunset Boulevard. Sunset Boulevard. <laughs> <laughs> Number 14. We just did a fucking episode about it. Night of Cups by Terrence Malick. Good movie. 2015. There we go. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a great movie. Listen to the episode we did with Logan. Mm-hmm. Okay. Here's what one one criticism, though. He should have, around 2015, I, th- I think this was still a thing, and it, it was probably shot before then. He should have had, like, a at the party... There should have been a guy stacking cups, like you know the speed stacking oh, cups. Oh yeah, and doing <laughs> a, doing a song with it too. Yeah, right? yeah and yeah. that guy should have been the Knight of Cups. <laughs> okay, here's uh, here two fresh off the dome that I didn't do in the episode: uh, Knight of Cucks and uh, Knight of Cocks. Knight of Cups and its breast cups. <laughs> that's he kind of is the Knight of Cups. Yeah, that's true. Way. Yeah, Christian Bale has a lot of sex in that movie. Listen to the episode <laughs> yeah. if you want more in-depth commentary. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> episode 30-something. So just look at in the 30s, and it'll be there. The only Terrence Malick film on our list. True. Um, Tree of Life. Fuck you. Fuck you. Honestly, yeah. I song, love Tree of Life. I love Tree of I Life, too. Tree of yeah. Life. No. Song I, to Song. Not on yeah. Song to Song is my number 21 on my list. So. One of your friends cheated and did a tie between Song to Song and yeah. Night of Cups on their list, so I split the vote. I allowed it. Dang. <laughs> I didn't want to allow it, but I was like, you know what? I'll allow it. Yeah. <laughs> That's the only reason Night of Cups is on the list. It would have made it actually on its own without those five points. Um, I did a very detailed point system for this. (laughs) Well, I'm glad glad you let my friend off the hook. I'll give him a slap on the (laughs) wrist for that. That's Adam. And did wrong. All lists will be on, uh, all like ballots will be on the letterboxed list. Oh, sick. Are you exposing them? I'm exposing them. And if you're listening to this and you don't want your ballot exposed... (laughs) Just tell me and I'll take yeah. it off. Or, not, or not too bad. Or so fuck, sad. You. Yeah. fuck you. Fuck <laughs> you. Yeah, no, or, or fuck, fuck you. you. <laughs> it's our list now. <laughs> <laughs> it all feeds into the big machine that is extended clip. <laughs> <laughs> Number 13. Guess who's back? Back again. Hong is back. <laughs> Telephone. Yes. <laughs> the Day He Arrives is our number 13 film of the decade. And this one I may have ranked too low. Mm-hmm. You know, you look at Letterboxd, I have it at five out of five. <laughs> <laughs> uh, another masterpiece with a much more hard to put your finger on uh, structure. This one, you watch, you figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, another uh, similar movie to Right Now, Wrong Then, where just you have your main character just kind of wandering around looking with nothing to do, just kind of finds trouble on his own accord and, you know, kind of creates all his own problems and stuff like that. And you get a couple of the scenarios replayed, but Mm -hmm. not quite exactly. And like on first viewing, I thought maybe it was, you know, not like right now wrong then where it is actually two, you know, consecutive days. And then I realized, no, there is a passing of the day, but then there's a repeat and it's like hard to figure out. But, you know, I've watched it like four times now and I don't give a shit if I don't fully get it. Yeah. It's one of the most pleasurable films of the decade. Like the way that he shoots cigarette smoke in black and white, that alone mm-hmm. deserves fucking five stars. 
Um, the the scene of the three. Oh, he is a filmmaker. The protagonist, mm-hmm. as many Hong protagonists are. The scene where he meets three film students uh, when he's just like pathetically drinking by himself and they like kind of gas him up and, you know, then they're all walking behind him and copying him and like they all buy packs of cigarettes when he starts chain smoking. (laughs) One of the greatest fucking moments in his filmography. Just (laughs) beautiful. Yeah. And like the way these conversations that, you know, always are in Hong movies, you know, they're very conversational, kind of like just the... The, how the, like the sourness people have always felt just casually creeping in to these conversations is so like affecting and you know i mean kind of true to you know some real life conversations we've all had yeah and i think with the the fact that's true to life that i feel like is beautiful about like hong films or one of many things that's beautiful about his films is that like he's not afraid especially cuz a lot of the filmmaker surrogates are like very clearly him he's not afraid to expose like a naked like patheticness like there's oh, yeah. one point early on in the film where he's like going back to like an ex-girlfriend's like place mm-hmm. and just sort of like begging and like <laughs> crying at like her feet and it's just it's so funny just mm-hmm. but and, like all- and then that paired with him just totally fucking brushing off the other woman who he runs into multiple times that mm-hmm. like works with the film students you yeah know? yeah just goes to show everything that's like wrong with his you know like sexual pathology basically or yeah or him getting texts from her and just like kind of yeah. like ignoring it's it's great it's great <laughs> very weird yeah. yeah. Also, I love the way that text messages are read mm-hmm. out loud in voice mo- voiceover in Hong Sang Soo movies. It gives it a very weird distancing feel uh, where it's like, I don't know, because he doesn't fully give in. It's more that it's not distancing. He's yeah. not fully giving in to the distancing of a digital conversation True. rather than a face to face one. He's kind of. You know, holding these characters a little closer than they are in real life, even. Yeah. Uh, and it's kind of beautiful because, like, no matter how many bozos he's portraying, they're all like characters that he cares about in a very strange Hongian way. And you know, kind of going back to the the text thing, that's kind of a a, a question that's been on a lot of filmmakers' mind this decade. How do you depict the text message? That's one of the grand grand tasks of this decade. A film that barely missed it. Uh, which I didn't like on the whole, mm-hmm. but gets this fucking right, is Personal Shopper, yeah. Olivier Asayas. Uh, I think that was like 26 or 27 on the list. The way that text messaging is displayed in that film is wonderful. Uh, tone Total opposite from Hong. You know, it's just mm-hmm. showing the text on screen. But yeah, back to the day he arrives... I don't know. There's just something so rewatchable about it. I mean, it's like 68 minutes Mm -hmm. and it's just really cozy, snowy, dark cinematography. So crisp. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, Hong is one of the masters. Yeah. And he's not afraid to expose the pathetic truths. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think this was my first Hong. and Definitely the one I like show to people or I've seen it the most. And I show to people when I'm introducing them to Hong. This one, I took me so long to get to because I went pretty much chronologically with him. So I didn't sit, this was like my 15th Hong Sang Soo mm-hmm. movie and I kind of underrated it at first. I saw, I saw the day he arrives and the day after. Ooh. 
but those are my first two and i was like dang i can't wait for more hong black and white i thought i was just thought he was a black and white specialist for some reason fuck i can't believe the day after isn't on this list the was, day after is so fucking day after is amazing too hong, dude hong sang is sick i know <laughs> <laughs> I, i've regressed from like standing him as hard as i did like three years ago yeah. when he had the year of on the beach uh the day after and claire's camera in the same year that was like the peak of my because i just yeah. ran through his filmography He's still like one of my very favorite filmmakers, mm-hmm. you know, just because I don't post about him as much doesn't mean the love <laughs> isn't there. And that applies to a lot of things. You That's know? true. That's true. There's a lot of things I love that I don't post about. Yeah. My girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> Number 12 is, uh, speaking of girlfriends, you ever have a Francis Ha fantasy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I want to fuck a girl in an American apparel ad, just like, just like Kanye West said in that one song. <laughs> Oh man, um, yeah, I remember being in community college watching number twelve, Francis Ha, twenty twelve, Noah Baumbach, and thinking, "Oh man, this is sick." And then I was just <laughs> like, I saw like one person online like shit on it, and I was like, "Oh yeah, they're right." <laughs> and then I revisited it like a few years later, and I was like, "Nah, this is pretty sick, honestly." Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm probably gonna be the biggest defender. I mean, I'm the biggest Baumbach boy in the yeah. bunch. Um, and this one, I feel like I have the strongest personal connection. Uh, I mean, I feel like I've brought, I'm getting real personal this episode, <laughs> what these movies have meant to me. Um, but this is the movie that brought Nico and I together. We like talked about it at a party, struck up a conversation, and I was like, this feels all right. Um, but uh, beyond just that, I feel like it's interesting because what it's like in trying to replicate that sort of like aimless, like French new wavy style, I feel like Bombach deviates from that in like very interesting ways, especially in the segment where Francis goes to Paris, because as opposed to how like um, like Truffaut, like will shoot like Paris in like like sort of the peak of like the French new wave where it's like light and playful and you see all these like uh, you see all these parts of the city like Francis's trip is so depressing and Mm -hmm. she's just in her like a like the apartment she's staying in she like sleeps too late because she's jet lagged yeah I haven't watched this movie since it kind of got released and I wasn't even really into movies at that time I was more into being indie (laughs) (laughs) Um, I remember being like like Kind of liking it, but maybe being kind of turned off by, like, the hipsterism of it. I don't know. That's also what I fucking... The yeah. first time I watched it, I was like, yeah, the, the shut the fuck up, hipster. Yeah, <laughs> STFU hipster. Well, because I, don't, I, don't even, I tried... Yeah. To, I, I was, like, in a fucking, you know, indie, whatever, punk band. Yeah. And, like, was fucking poor and couldn't afford to dress like a fucking hipster. So yeah. I was like, fuck these hipsters. The real hipsters are the punks. Yeah, extended <laughs> clip is made of failed hipsters. <laughs> but, um, Except JT. He's got to go a successful true, hipster. True. You know what? You're right. JT. <laughs> JT's got the killer hipster fits that I would have made fun of five years ago, but I'm friends with him now. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I also don't know how to dress, too, so I can't really make fun of people. I've worn either sweats or basketball shorts the last 35 times you've seen me. (laughs) It's a style, though. I think the Sandman, like, has really made me (laughs) come around to that. It's like... It's a choice. It's yeah. a bold one. Yeah, I mean, we've what, done thirty-five episodes, hung out a couple times. Addition to that, you guys have seen all my outfits, probably. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how Twice. we'll wrap up talking about Francis Ha, men's casual fashion. Um, <laughs> what? I'll let me give a shout out to Greenberg, which I watched recently and I thoroughly enjoyed. And I've always been like a Bombach skeptic, but 
I think I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm a little too harsh on him sometimes. Yeah, I feel like I'm just not in any position to talk about Francis Hall because I don't remember it that well. Yeah, I don't. Like, have, I, I watched it twice and I don't remember. Literally, it that well. don't remember anything about it. But no, I like. There's definitely like that distance there. I have like with Francis Ha where it's like, yeah, it's like one of those like bullshit things where it's like people like see like the cutesy parts of it and it's like modern love fucking plays in it. Yeah, and it's like they. I, I think it's really easy to for like stuff like that to seem like pretty base and like middle brow. But I think Bombach will subvert it in like rel- relatively like interesting ways. And like that doesn't make up the core of the movie for me. I feel like it's an interesting journey of like a character who's like, I mean, obviously it's like very privileged and like relatively like middle class, but I think it depicts like a pretty interesting alienation and especially like, uh, in terms of millennials, like grappling with like class status, where like Francis like pursue, she has like a degree in like dancing, which like obviously isn't like as secure of a field, and she's just struggling to find her place and like get a job in that and like security that would have been afforded to like her parents' generation, as seen like by when you, she like goes back home. Um, and it shows that grappling with like lo- like declining in class status and sort of like coming to an acceptance of that. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think class movies that are about upper middle class people are they just have a stink on them that you have to get through to get the real meaning of them mm-hmm. sometimes. I mean, uh, I can and I get why people one don't of those like that. Movies. Yeah. yeah, I think this is mm-hmm. one where you kind of have to put up yeah. with some bullshit. I, I, I shop at Casual Mail XL, so it's going to take, <laughs> there's a little more burial, barriers for me to break through to enjoy this movie. Um, although what you said, what you liked about Francis Ha, how it takes a certain type of movie or... I don't know, idea and like subverts it. That's what I like about Greenberg because, you know, it kind of takes like that old 70s, like sour, just, you know, one man show character study, character study movie and kind of, you know, just kind of turns it on its head and it's just kind of like a total indictment of this guy's whole character. Also, I think like I, I remember that picture of. Um, this is this is theory right here, but I remember that picture that was released late 2019 of Gerwig and Bombach at some sort of award show, mm-hmm. and like he's wearing, they're both wearing like Laura Dern crew necks or whatever. Oh, and, like, okay. You could tell by Bombach's face he fucking hates that he he's <laughs> fucking doing this bullshit where they're wearing Laura Dern crew necks, and that kind of unlocked his perspective. Yeah, for me. because that kind of he un- loves Laura Dern, but he doesn't want to be a t-shirt guy. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> It kind of unlocked Bombach for me. It's like, okay, I kind of get it now. Yeah, no, the worst sourpuss tendencies in Bombach, I hate that I feel them. Exactly, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think, it's I like think... him and ARP both. Like, they make, you know, I, I maybe that's the point that, and I just haven't fully come around to embracing it mm-hmm. the way I do with some of my favorites. But with both uh, Alex Ross Perry and Noah Bombach, the worst worst parts of their characters are very clearly in me and all of my friends. Totally. <laughs> That's why I like We Are Your Friends. It's a nice escape. It's a nice fun movie <laughs> with good boys. Good boys. Who do good and get 818 tattooed on their knuckles. <laughs> That's what I want. <laughs> um, number 11 is The Other Side of the Wind by Netflix. 2018. <laughs> no, it's by Orson Welles. Edited by Netflix. Yeah. Um, no, it yeah. it is. It's like Orson Welles. He didn't get to complete his final picture, but uh, like 
have you seen the fucking like <laughs> filmography that he has? None of those movies yeah. are what he wanted them to be, so <laughs> other than Citizen Kane. It's kind of fitting that yeah. this is the case, too. With yeah, exactly. One. But um, it's an incredible fucking movie. It's like, ah, I don't even know where to begin. Just like, it's such a dense formal experiment you know mm-hmm. uh just trying to keep up with like all the format changes and just the cuts you know the very basis of movie watching you know connecting one mm-hmm. image to the other yeah the cutting in this is so fast that it's fucking hard to do it and you have to remember that you're working with wells who is one of the greatest of all time at creating meaning out of images mm-hmm. and like just having to pause this movie as I was watching it just to fucking take in what I saw over a 30 minute spurt or sorry, a 30 second spurt rather. Um, yeah. It's one of the most like rewarding experiences uh, that, yeah, you, like for some aspects of it, you have to work a little hard, but for the most part, it's just like raw cinematic pleasure. Yeah. I mean the kind of like this, this chaotic party that, the John Houston character is at, you know, kind of a Wells, hey, we like these directors being conduits for main characters. Yeah. Huh? Um, and kind of like the the mania of this party, you know, it's kind of like, oh, it's almost like a found footage film <laughs> in, yeah. in a way where, you know, you cut through all these different student camera perspectives that are filming the party. And then just over time, like this party just decays into like where bitter truths are being revealed and kind of like the everyone's kind of dislike for each other is coming to the surface and it's really amazing how you know these conversations turn so personal and then they realize how many people are around them and that yeah. there's in every single room no matter where they're tr- they you know no matter where they are there's no privacy there's always someone slinking in the corner with the camera it's i mean it's really effective i loved it i feel like uh, to speak to what you were saying about the the party aspect of it the best depiction of being at a par- uh, like at a party that goes for too fucking long True. <laughs> yeah. uh, in, in like in uh movie history but like also with what you were saying about uh it being like uh the sort of a predecessor to found footage films uh, it's insane to see i forget there's um wells is being presented with an award uh, when he was working on this picture and he shows like a scene from it that he was edi- editing and uh, it's the scene where Kodar is like fucking uh, in the car. And One it, of the best scenes of the decade. Mm-hmm. And it's just wild to see Wells as like a director who like sh- very early on like clearly shied away from horniness. Yeah. Like really embracing it late in uh, his age and just on top of that being like so formally experimental like it it's just blows my mind that he made this movie in the 70s with this sort of game plan for it yeah just shitting on the entirety of like the whole new hollywood idea of a director yeah it's so funny because it's like yeah you could say he's criticizing the old macho directors like john houston himself Mm -hmm. and like john ford and stuff like that and, you know, I, I love that main character because it's this amalgamation. It's like those tough guy directors and a little bit of the artsy intellectual Orson Welles type director as well. Um, but the real director of the movie is the next generation. It's all these students that are filming the party, these film students, film critics, film geeks. You know, uh, I forgot what uh, at one point they're called a certain degrading uh, term that I forget now because it's been a couple years now since I've seen the movie uh, or a year and a half or whatever but 
it's a really interesting it, it's kind of like loosely connected to what i said about film socialism about it being a much more collaborative picture than usual for Godard, where it's this crew that went to explore this boat before he stepped on it mm-hmm. and to understand the staging of like or how to stage scenes in that and how to make a movie out of this setting uh this movie diegetically you know the characters in it are doing that essentially yeah for houston because the documents stitched together of this night uh, the film that this film is in the voiceover, you know, it presents itself as a film. Uh, Peter Bogdanovich in the beginning talks about how they stitched together all the footage from the party. Uh, and I'm not going to do a Bogdanovich impression. I'll leave that to someone smarter or uh, better at impressions. <laughs> I wish I could, though. That would yeah. be great. It's it's a very weird uh, text about authorship. And, like, of course, the very weird text about authorship was edited after Orson Welles had been dead for fucking 25 years. Yeah, Yeah, with heavy involvement from Bogdanovich. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and Bogdanovich, you know, fits right into one of those guys who would have been holding the camera. I mean, he's in the film. He's great in it. Uh, Mm. In that shitty documentary that came with it on Netflix, there's footage of him doing a Jerry Lewis impression (laughs) because apparently his character for the first couple days of shooting was just a Jerry Lewis impersonation, basically. (laughs) It's also funny considering that he kind of had a mentor relationship with Wells himself that also went bad too. Yeah, and so like the the stuff people like to meme when he says, you know, what did I do wrong, daddy? Yeah. Uh, to Orson or to John Huston's character, uh, but it is a really fucking impactful moment. Yeah. You know, <laughs> like Bogdanovich is like idolizing this man who he wants to just worship at the feet of. And he's like, what, what did I do wrong? Yeah. But then in real life, like the tables are turned. Wells can't fucking make a movie. Bogdanovich is the king of new Hollywood, you know? And it's really sad. I don't know. It's a, it's a really sad movie, especially with the end, uh, <laughs> that ending voiceover with the fucking dried up morning, like so, after the sunrise shots of the fucking drive-in that's been deserted. Yeah. Uh, very bleak. Yeah. And all the homoerotic... To get to what you're talking oh, yeah. about, the daddy, all the homoerotic stuff is so perfect. Yeah. It's just like, there are so many like different parts to this picture that are just fantastic. And I, like, after it first came out, I feel like I... I think I watched it like three times and just something I definitely am going to return to many, many times. Also, uh, to speak... There's two more points here. One is back to the authorship thing. Netflix also uploaded, take, took down and re-uploaded it twice that weekend with different color grading. I have screenshots mm. to prove it on my Twitter. This <laughs> is like when Jeff Wells thought Roma was in color. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> no, fucking do it right now from iPod video. Uh, do the eyeballs emoji. Uh, because I remember it now and I will have a side-by-side comparison of a shot of Oya Kodar Uh the day that they released it and the Sunday, uh, two days later, completely fucking different color grading. Interesting. Uh, very interesting. Very strange conspiracy. Um, it was just worked on until they uploaded it. I'm pretty sure it's just that. And they were just fixing some stuff. But the other thing is Orson Welles's horny journey. You talked about him starting off as a prude director and going on. I think it's so beautiful. His last couple films, how like the immortal story 
is about him watching people having sex and like F for fake is just about his girlfriend being hot. And then this movie is about him maybe being bi a little bit. Like, <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's beautiful. Amazing. Like it's, all the- it's so amazing the way he's able to open up it like in these very personal and experimental films that he rounded out his career with. I love it. And it- this is, this is a working theory that Nico has. I'm not sure if I'm going to co-sign it, but he <laughs> says, uh, that, uh, the scene where Kodar is fucking in uh, the in the car, and it's the younger uh, man. Yeah. Um. He Nico's convinced that it was Orson Welles just filming himself fucking o- o- Kodar <laughs> in it, which I, I like. I'm just throwing that out there. I don't think he was mobile enough to do it. <laughs> <at that point. laughs> Wonder how, what the penis was like at that age. <laughs> um. Also, just to you know, make cinematic parallels. We love doing that. Um, Wells kind of revealing his buy card reminds me of Clint Eastwood re- revealing his buy card in the movie Tightrope, in which he's a detective investigating sex worker murders, and he goes to a gay club, and one of the gay club go, one of the gay club goers, you know, kind of mocks him for not being gay. So you don't know until you try it. And then to which he responds, "Well, maybe I have." <laughs> <laughs> and also all right not to not to get into tightrope too much but that movie was obviously like it was written by him but he got his uh i think it's his first ad to take credit for it and that was like the only movie that or directed got, right yeah directed yeah, it. Yeah. yeah yeah and like who knows maybe clint was revealing too much there no i i have a few like there's like five or six clint starring movies around that period that have directors that have made two or three movies that all star Clint Eastwood yeah. and like their crew members on other Eastwood productions. And it's like, maybe it's a ghost director thing. Maybe it's him letting people have shine, True. you know, uh, the way, you know, he learned from fucking being an actor and like taking notes from Don Siegel. Yeah. Could have been trying to do the same thing for some others. True. Tightrope was his magic mic double XL. Exactly. <laughs> 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 Which is missing from this list. I'm a big fan of it, though. It but, did yeah. get quite a few votes. Yeah. It'll, it's on the larger list. It's mm-hmm. like number 30, I'm pretty sure. I think it got around 15 points. Respect. Yeah. Um, we're going to take a little break before the top 10. Uh, our voices are tired. We need to drink water and eat cough drops. But before that, um, how about another uh, little message from one of our friends? Go for it. Drop the needle. Hey, it's Sean Glynis. And my number one movie from the last decade was Aki Korzmaki's Layoff, um, which is just a small movie about um, this shoe shiner, Marcel, and his wife and his neighbors just trying to get by in this small French port town um, when this uh, illegal immigrant from Africa, this young boy, shores up, and Marcel is just trying to do what he can to, to hide this boy from the police. Um, and I love it because... Uh, it's well it has like Korsmaki's like hockney like compositions which are just great to look at and it has this stillness and this sort of like distance Bressonian effect but if Bresson was like you know approachable and warm and, and tender um and funny um and uh yeah it's just a great movie about um what communities can do to to come together to actually help people who need to be helped um, and just uh, doing what they can to survive. Uh, basically, it's what everyone who loves Paddington uh, says about Paddington, but it's actually good. 
Nice. Love that dig at the end. Yeah, that was a very worthwhile shot to be taken. I, I think I think people need to shut the fuck up about Paddington. <laughs> Don't watch children's movies. Those are for children. <laughs> if I see you at a child's movie alone, I'm going to assume bad things. Number well, 10, Moana. Children's movies. <laughs> Moana by Disney. Number 10. <laughs> Um, sorry, I stepped on you asking what he was doing at children's movies. I was That's patrolling. <laughs> I was looking for pedophiles at children's movies. That's what I was doing. What were you doing? Stop pedophilia. Have you guys ever seen basically like a kid's movie early? Like I went to Lego Batman the day it opened. Uh, it was a school day, so yeah. I thought it would be empty. Must have been some fucking holiday or something. Because <laughs> yeah. I went to the 9.30 a.m. on like a Wednesday and it was full of kids. And I was so pissed off. Yeah. Maybe it was summer. That's the worst. <laughs> I saw Bumblebee in a theater full of children at like 7 on a Thursday. I thought it would be not that crowded. I think that movie had came out a couple weeks beforehand. But lo and behold, it's a, it was so many kids. Also, like I didn't think of it explicitly as a kid's movie. Like I thought of it as more as a Transformers movie, but that is more of a kid's movie. Also depicts Santa Cruz, my hometown. So that's, that's why I went to see it. On that note, we're going to take a little break. Well, does JT have, do you have a kid's, were you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think, okay, a kid's movie story. Um, the first time I felt someone up was at Cars 2. <laughs> and on that note, we will take a little break. Um, yeah, we'll be back with the top 10. You all better go back to the gym. You look like you're gaining weight. I got to go to this shop and buy some condoms. And remember, no slapping. Number 10. Oh, aren't you so excited for the top 10? Yeah, I don't even know what it is. I forgot at this point. So, Well, it's 2010's Certified Copy ah. by Abbas Kiristami. Oh, boy. I'm going to hit right at the gate uh, Certified Cock Pee. Like peeing out your cock. Yes, okay, yes, okay, yes okay, of course. But but to speak to the actual, you know, merit. that one didn't really hit as hard as usual with uh, with your uh, dirty alliteration, not alliterations, but you know. Um, but to speak to the actual merit of this film, this is the first Kiristami I saw, and I mean, I've only really done the later efforts of his, and I, need, I definitely need to trek back and uh, catch the early ones, but. It's breathtaking in the sense where I feel like it's similar to like a lot of the Hongs we've talked about, where there's like a great level of ambiguity in the relationship between the protagonists, where it's this, uh, it's been a hot minute since I've seen it, but it's uh, like a professor. A writer. Yeah, a writer. um, And then potentially like his wife or like ex-wife. You're not sure as you go. It's kind of like... there's a big reveal, you know, uh, wait for the epic twist. It was all his imagination. Yeah, she was a ghost the whole time. <laughs> I haven't no, seen this movie, but it, if I were to guess. It's a film that works towards a reveal about 50 minutes in that, like, sure, it changes the perspective on everything. But more than that, it just makes you call back to all the conversations they had leading up to that. And it's not like a re- it's like a slow reveal where you're not exactly sure what it means until maybe the scene after, you know uh and it ends on a beautiful like grace note for kiristami like these 
these late period films of him looking out the window pretty much. Uh, this one ends with an open window as, you know, 24 frames has a lot of that in it too, as does like someone in love. And it, it's really this weird thing where Kiristami is unable to continue making films in Iran and he's going all over the world kind of uh, exploring kind of the cinematic textures that the rest of the world has to offer. And he's laying very kind of basic narratives over it, but it's Kiristami. So you like can't help it. And like the, the dense, you know, the density of the characters uh, is so strong. The layers are always being peeled back. And, you know, formally it's, it's Kiristami. He's a master of the form. Uh, like, literally, there's no one more assured behind the camera, really, than Kiristami. He's he might be my favorite all-time filmmaker, you know? And um, one of his trademarks, of course, is the driving scene. Lots of scenes of people talking and driving in his films. And this has one of the all-timers. We'll get to more uh, with his other film on the list. But just the reflections of the city and the countryside uh, off the windows as you look at the characters' faces while they drive is, I don't know, it's so breathtaking, and he could shoot five hours of that, and I'd never get bored. Oh, yeah, this film has, like, mirrors and reflections out the ass. Oh, yeah. A whole lot of copies, and just, like, really interrogating uh, that idea of, like, authenticity and, like, like does it really matter like if it's like the real thing or mm-hmm. not i mean i think that relates like definitely like heavily to like if like the ambiguity of whether or not they're married it doesn't really matter it's just like they're a copy of a married couple yeah and um yeah i don't know the the specifics aren't really that important as you move on to these late kirsten he's like painting in such broad strokes that like the the smallest line of dialogue that you know looking at it on the surface level of realism is just like, yeah, it's two people talking or whatever, but he's able to imply so much with either a line of dialogue or a camera movement or a cut, you know, um, just one of the most powerful filmmakers using all the tools at his disposal, uh, to make something that really creeps up on you as it progresses in a way that his earlier films didn't really. Yeah. I wish I had rewatched this, uh, more recently to, to like, have specifics about like the conversations they have because the dialogue is really beautiful and it was one of the initial things that stood out to me but it's just been too damn long (laughs) but i know i love this movie uh number nine black hat black hat by michael mann you say it's his last film i don't buy it i hope it's not i hope i'm wrong i i'm just i'm skeptical dude yeah no he's had some other stuff fall through he was supposed to not Ford versus Ferrari, but a similar mm. movie that he had in development was basically squashed by the existence of Ford versus Ferrari, uh, which is kind of depressing. And it uh, summarizes the state of uh, big movies. <laughs> but Black Hat's amazing. Uh, Michael Mann's late period, very digital uh, thriller with, you know, uh, Chris Hemsworth as a hacker uh, that is brought out of jail uh, to work for the government and uh yeah it's just one of the most like i don't know when you talk about like digital textures in cinema this mm-hmm. decade i can't really think of something else before i think of the beginning of this movie <laughs> where you're going through the fucking computer <laughs> like yeah. uh like during the uh the soy spike or whatever uh just like 
data being transferred you know the way that man shows this uh just through like cg effects is breathtaking and it's like thrilling too it's like Mm. you're it's a next generation version of a driving scene you know um yeah amazing movie yeah i mean you look at something like public enemies and he's kind of using the digital technology to reshape the past whereas this one it seems like he's seeing how like digital technology has affected the world and you know just the way we live currently how you could you know hack how you know you could hack the world basically you could change the world by hacking it and I mean, there's a lot to like about this movie. Chris Hemsworth delivering a Stallone tier performance. Oh, mushmouthness! Just one of the last, like, great action performances. I oh could my think god, of. I I did not make the Stallone connection, but you're spot on with that. Yeah, and his mushmouthness is so great because, like, I don't know, he's still able to reach a level of tenderness where the romantic plot line really works. It's oh. really effective. Yeah. I mean, the romantic desperation that, you know, is in a lot of man's late work is just as felt here. I mean, one of the best images of this movie is when we see uh, Hemsworth and his love interest, who I've forgotten the name of, unfortunately, um, spooning, but he's the little spoon. And it's just a brief moment. But yeah. it's just like, ah, oh, that's great, man. And like the first romantic encounter of theirs, I believe, is on a rooftop. And mm-hmm. it's like man has made so many films where dudes are on rooftops together. (laughs) It's nice to bring a lady up there once in a while. (laughs) (laughs) But really like looking at his digital, you know, career, the images that flood my mind are, you know, uh, Jamie Foxx and Colin Farrell on a rooftop in Miami vice. And then in black hat, this, you know, romantic moment on a rooftop and the way that he's able to blend, uh, you know, his, fetishization of professionalism with this really strong sense of romanticism that's developed over the last 20 years of his career really i mean it's always been there since thief the romance in that is really incredible but it's so much more desperate here and it's lovely Mm -hmm. and man's like i mean he's one of my favorite framers the way he frames an image is just it seems like the perfect decision i mean something like the airport scene in black hat is almost like unexplainable like how effective it is yeah where we like it's very simple like like through this kind of like what could seem like uh going through the motions getting to the next set piece you know airport scene hemsworth takes a brief uh break to look out the vast emptiness of the airport field, oh my and God. it's overwhelming and just like this, this slight digression just is it's just arresting the way that he's able to take these little breathers and do that and still pace an action movie. And this is an action is an fucking action movie. movie. There's an amazing fist fight uh, in a Korean restaurant. There's a shootout that goes through like tunnels and reservoirs. Uh, it's it's just a fucking... It's a movie. Fucking yeah. watch it. <laughs> <laughs> Man's the best action director of all time. Yeah. No doubt. I can't think of anyone better. Like no, there's, yeah. you know, maybe Woo's, Johnny, uh, I was going to say Johnny Toe or John Woo. Those are close seconds, but I feel like, I don't know, man, Yeah, man just takes it to some levels. That... No, exactly. And like, I don't know, man, the cultural specificity of man too. Like he's always finding the timestamps of what tech was at that point in time for that person's profession, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. like the cell phones in all of his movies past 2000 or whatever. Uh, are very specific and you know the types of cameras he's shooting on the laptops that are used in this movie the 
the computer in the back of the Korean restaurant yeah. uh, that Chris Hemsworth hacks into before he gets in a fight when he receives the ultimate fucking digital message the best line of uh dialogue in the movie when he says piss off ghost man he yeah. just reads like no one says that but that's like the line of the movie you know it's just, <laughs> it's a digital image that ingrains as dialogue in your movie it's it's masterful yeah he found a he found a way to depict chat rooms <laughs> uh number eight is also a, a nice tender romance phantom thread by paul thomas anderson 2017 well, I feel like for me, this was like a the big intro to like film Twitter sort of bullshit. Like this was the <laughs> memed about uh, film of the year. And before I had even seen it, I was already sick of seeing like images from it. But it like, I, I don't know. I feel like the true test for like something that is discoursed about for me is whether like after I'm like inundated with bullshit like and people talking about it ad nauseum is just like this is uh, so beautiful and precise um it's it, it really surpasses like fuck maybe not surpasses his previous work but i mean it's definitely like a maturation of yeah. what PTA is doing i mean i think with this and the other uh decade uh film it's more like it's not formally restrained um but it calls less attention to itself yeah but at the same time all of the compositions are as perfect as he's gotten kind of yeah. in his career it's his most rigid movie yeah it's like i don't know yeah it's it's kind of like what i was saying about scorsese in the very beginning of this movie where the the style isn't calling out to you as much but it's as locked in as it's ever been. yeah for sure uh, this is a beautiful film. Uh, he did not shoot it himself. He just didn't have a DP, and he kind of directed the camera crew. Uh, <laughs> that's the, the one thing that kind of pissed me off, only because I'm a fucking loser and like read yeah. all the interviews and everything and read him refute uh, him being his own cinematographer so many times, where now I'm defending him, saying that he's not <laughs> the cinematographer of the movie. Uh, that's interesting. I've yeah, never heard of a movie doing that before. Well, it's because he's worked with this camera crew so many times. Like, yeah. it's the same crew that he's worked with for this decade. And so I guess they're just used to him, I guess. <laughs> like, they know what huh. he's trying to do. I don't know. Paul Thomas Anderson is also kind of an anomaly in American film, up to his own little thing in the corner that seems like it blends in with the rest of film culture but it's somewhere between the prestige and the art house and the independent and it's just it's pta and he just like keeps getting better uh it's not his best film but it's one of his best films mm -hmm. and uh i think the romance portrayed here is unlike anything uh really i've seen this decade there's a lot of strange romances in this top 10 you know yeah but this is the one that like is just really sweet and warm but also just like is about you know manipulation and poisoning your partner yeah. <laughs> and like uh it's a very strange movie that i've seen a bunch of times and you know i've seen fucking stupid memes that make me think i don't like the movie because people suck online mm -hmm. uh but it's tried and true go back to it every few every few weeks i'll watch a couple scenes and just melt away at no, it no it like interrogates like that codependence of like a toxic relationship in a particularly interesting way because it's like 
I like when you're because I don't want to say the relationship in this movie is necessarily a bad one, but no, like, it's just strange. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, but like, I don't know, it, it covers both ends of that spectrum where it's like they're like she's doing a very awful manipulative thing of like poisoning him. But he's also like one of the most outrageous pricks. He yeah. needs to be tamed. Ladies, yeah. listen up. This is how you tame your fellow. You dose him. Just dose him real quick while he's not looking. And uh, ladies, he likes it. <laughs> I mean, I th- one thing that I didn't really understand watching this movie at first that kind of turned me off to it, which I eventually came around. I love this movie. It's how funny it is. It's so oh my God, yeah. funny. One of the funniest movies of the decade to me. And just because I love kind of like a, like a prissy, is that an offensive word? Prissy? <laughs> no, like, you could say yeah, it. Yeah. A, pr- a prissy, like a fet, like upper class man just being really snooty is just yeah. really funny to me. Like, it's just like, yeah, no, I, I thought it was really funny too. The yeah. first audience I watched it with did not laugh that much. And yeah. I, I also saw it with my dad that yeah. time and we were <laughs> eating burgers after. And the first thing he said about the movie that he got out was like, man, that guy was really fussy, huh? <laughs> <laughs> but like you get into like, and I mean, that's uh, one of the things about the film that I really love is the sound design. You get in it so much in his head where you're like at the, the, the dinner or the breakfast table yeah. and you just feel just as annoyed as he is <laughs> like by all the minute yeah. sounds even when they're like outside on their honeymoon eating and she's scraping the fucking yeah. butter on the toast it's like realistically he can't hear that yeah there's so much noise going on but that is the loudest thing in the mix by far uh, i think that's so funny he's, I yeah, love it's it. something he's over exaggerating in his mind just but to it, be more annoyed with her i mean i think there's a certain truth to that because yeah. like when you're in like a particularly unpleasant relationship like all of those negative aspects become really amplified mm-hmm. like that yeah mm-hmm. what a great breakfast movie too oh yeah I mean, great breakfast order, a lot of breakfast scenes, truly the breakfast movie of the decade. <laughs> also, one of my, probably my favorite ending of the decade. Yeah. It's, oh, man, Possibly? all of PTA's endings this decade have been God level, but that one is... That one made me jump. I was like, wow, fuck. Yeah, it was really scary. Yeah. <laughs> also, a uh, little personal history. I had some beef with my grandma over this movie. I told her, like, when she saw it, she's like, that, I didn't like that movie. You thought that movie was good? I was like, yeah, that's great. It was like... Give it the rewatch, Nana. Give it <laughs> give it the rewatch. She called me months later. She said I was right. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I could not convince my grandma to rewatch Silence. She hated it so much. And she gave me like the film bro at school trying to make you look like a clown treatment in front of my family. She was just like, what did you like about it? Like, like, what did you even like about it? Yeah, I have a pre- I have a priest uncle who watches a lot of movies. I remember him not liking Silence. He did like uh, Sea of Trees, the Gus Van Sant effort from this oh. year, much lambasted. So this decade, this decade, did it come out this year? Yeah, no. Th- oh, did I say this year? Yeah, I meant this decade. That's okay. Sorry. It's, I mean, I know it's okay. It's fine. <laughs> we all make mistakes <laughs> yeah. on this podcast. Hey, Gus Van Sant. <laughs> Bring us a new movie this year so Malcolm can be right. Yeah. Also, make a, make good movies again. Can you stop yeah. making this fucking crap that you're making? 
Don't worry. He won't get far on, on his ass because yeah. it sucked. Yeah. We love you, Gus, but yeah, if you're listening, do to, better. I really yeah. wanted to like that one, too. It's so bad. It's got, like, the same Portland scenery as, like, Elephant, you know? And there's yeah. some scenes early on when he's whizzing in the uh, whizzing by in the wheelchair. And, mm-hmm. like, it's like the driving in the beginning of Elephant. True. And you're like, oh, this might be good. Yeah. And then it's not. One of the it's... Jonah Hill with one of the worst performances of the decade. Oh, my God. So to, bad. To contrast his amazing performance in Beach Bum, <laughs> which I'm thinking now are pretty similar performances. Now that very I think similar, <laughs> very similar. But instead, he's playing a gay man in uh, that movie. Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> Shout out to the good Gus Van Sant movies. Have you guys seen uh, Malanoche? Not yet. That's no. oh, you should definitely check that shit out. That's like I, that's his first, his debut feature. I believe so. Oh, it is fucking great watch uh, listed watch listed indeed uh number seven is like someone in love by abbas kiristami 2012 his I last i think you mean frank sinatra <laughs> like <laughs> didn't he sing that song <laughs> you got me <laughs> let's wrap it up <laughs> also not from this decade get the fuck off of here <laughs> yeah, that's an old ass song <laughs> On to number six. <laughs> uh, no, Like Someone in Love completely blew me away. I watched it a couple nights ago. Um, this time, Kiristami is in Japan. Uh, I like his little tour of the Eastern Hemisphere in this decade. Um, yeah, his final narrative feature, and it's a really touching little story about a uh, a student and part-time sex worker who gets called out to go uh, see this old man who's a professor and writer and translator and uh, they they spend an evening together and then he drops her off at school and uh, meets her boyfriend or her fiance rather and there's some there's some conversations between them and uh, that's the whole movie pretty much yeah I yeah. mean again <laughs> much like much like certified copy it's like that uh, playing on what relationships are because the old man adopts like when he's talking to her fiance he's like oh i'm her grandfather yeah the main part of the movie that i just totally glazed over just now (laughs) (laughs) um but with that i don't know it's like there's so much there and what is not uh being told because you don't really understand why uh, i mean like obviously like a lot of older folks that see sex workers there is like a level of companionship there but he takes on like the very grandfather and paternal aspects like when the fiance is like sort of freaking out like he sort of nurtures and protects her and uh it's really interesting to see that relationship unfold where he becomes uh, this grandfather figure to her while she is like completely fucking ignoring her own grandmother yeah. who just in like yeah. such a, like a brutal scene early oh. on where she's like in the car like uh, driving being driven to his place just listening to the multiple voicemails yeah. and it's just like please this is a desperate plea from extended clip please reach out to your grandmothers make sure they're yeah. okay give her a call if she's in town don't don't go fuck that old man. Just uh, <laughs> <laughs> go pay a visit to me, go Ma. Yeah, and then I mean, uh, spoilers. But how she goes, she how she orders the cab driver to drive around her 
in yeah. the bus station where she said oh, she was located. It's so painful. So painful. And this is a very painful movie. Yeah. I mean, it's oppressive. It's a, it's <laughs> and it's like, you know, part and parcel with a lot of late directors work. It's kind of has a bleak on a surface level read. It kind of has a very bleak outlook on like relationships or whatever. Yeah. Kind of like that conversation between uh the old professor and the fiance is just the conclusion of that is like, you're going to have to accept some lies. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. It's, it's, like, it's, just, it's like, ah, fuck. And then, I mean, the ending too is just, is like, it reminds me of uh, the devil probably. Like, yeah, it's just, exactly. It's yeah. just, it's, it's just like that. Just being walked to death basically. Yeah. yeah. Um, not to spoil the end of the movie, mm-hmm. but, uh, a brick is thrown through the window and, the old man collapses and the credits roll while he's on the ground out of frame. Uh, and you're looking out the window that was broken. Mm-hmm. And I, I said earlier about the, the window motif in the late Kiristami and he's always, you know, been into it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a, there's a shot in through the olive trees uh, where they're like showing the filming of the previous one in the trilogy uh, and life goes on and he like zooms through the window of the house that they're shooting at like while the actors are uh you know talking to each other between takes and just like it's just this little distraction from the drama that you're watching the camera just zooms through this window and into the nature uh and just kind of hangs on that for a little bit and it's really bleak to think about the way that Kirstami used to shoot nature and then is shooting these urban really cramped spaces and these driving scenes where Instead of nature being reflected on the cars uh, through the windows and like having these huge wide open shots where you see cars uh, going through these really long roads in Iran. uh, Here you have, you know, the highways and the buildings reflected off the windows and you don't really get that wide of a shot of the grandpa's Volvo at all. Like the widest it'll go, the car still takes up three quarters of the frame, you know. And uh, let's just say in the earlier Kurosawa movies, there's a lot of shots where the car is tiny. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's just like a beautiful driving movie, uh, but it's also just really uneasy. And Rio Kase, the star of Hill of Freedom, is incredible here as the temperamental. Uh, you know, toxic masculine fiance who, you know, is bringing all of these old ideals about, you know, he wants uh, the lie. He thinks that all the problems are going to be solved with infidelity in his relationship by marrying his wife or by marrying the main character, because, you know, if it's his wife, she can't do shit, (laughs) like, (laughs) uh, which is very backwards and regressive and terrible. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you know, uh, maybe even on the nose a bit that like the old man has to tell him basically to be less regressive. Yeah. Also, uh, just to speak to the formal qualities of this, you know, strong as always, of course, I mean, something to do with the windows. One thing that really stuck out to me is you see the old man and the woman, you know, going to the old man's apartment and you're seeing this through like a curtain, you know, Mm -hmm. you're not exactly sure where you're seeing this through. And then it's revealed that it's uh, his neighbor who's, you know, older woman around his age yeah. who's just watching him and it's kind of just watched this man throughout her entire life as she is, you know, kind of as she's taking care of her handicapped brother inside her room, kind mm-hmm. of, you know, you'd imagine kind of having to pay a lot of attention to that. And just Kiristami's attention to 
just a you know small you know not throwaway character but not not really part of like the the whole plot or anything just to give her like that five to ten minutes of you know pure unbridled humanity that's you know kind of bleak in this instance yeah it's just you know why he's one of the 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 greatest yeah all the window stuff Mm -hmm. i mean that was like what i mainly just spit out on letterbox after watching it is like it's really incredible how everything is played through windows in this like the neighbor watching uh the professor's life through her window you know and like that first glance out the window looking down from his apartment Mm -hmm. when she first arrives in the taxi and the aforementioned taxi scene where she's watching her grandma wait for her at a statue while listening to the voicemails. Just like looking, but like all these poles and like streetlights and other cars are kind of getting in the yeah. way. And there's a lot of that in this film where you're supposed to be kind of in the point of view of a character's gaze and something's obstructing the view. You know, like you can't ever get that clean image that you want to remember something by in this film and it's beautiful uh i don't know i love it yeah and i mean another like great moment of observation where it's just like it's yearning for there to be some sort of interference but when the professor is watching her talk to her fiance uh outside the college Mm -hmm. and he's like getting like the fiance is getting aggressive with her it's like in uh, like a more traditional film they would like you would anticipate like there to for him to like come and like break him up and be like that but you just instead just get this lovely moment of observation and him watching them and kind of like the dissatisfaction that comes with this observation yeah and it's like kind of a a prelude to the very end where uh the fiance character like you think <laughs> that you're you're the professor is going to like get called out for watching that little scuffle because like Rio Kase comes back downstairs, uh, gets a cigarette out, can't light it. And then just starts staring down the professor character whose point of view you're in. And he's basically looking right down the barrel of the camera and he slowly approaches it and knocks on the window to ask for a lighter. Uh, also total dirtbag move, <laughs> like makes the guy use the car lighter, gets it fucking reaches in for the car lighter blows the first hit of smoke directly into the car (laughs) the knocking on that you know and then about an hour later the final action of the film him breaking the the apartment window of the professor uh is a great like really sad uh way to wrap up this film and yeah, it's just like it's an ending that completely shocked me and I had to run it back. And then I also just ran back the film and just watched a bunch of scenes from it right after I finished it because it's one that just I it's not that I couldn't get a grip on what it was doing. I just like I liked what it was doing. I just needed to find exactly the groove that it was. in. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I just like had to kind of keep watching it. Yeah. Number six. Goodbye to language by Jean-Luc Godard. Bye bye. 2014. <laughs> yeah, we're not going to talk about this <laughs> yeah. one. Yeah, in folks, 3D. put on your 3D earbuds. <laughs> yeah. Did you boys see this in 3D? I did. I did. I yeah. I also had the opportunity. It was lovely. Like yeah. this mm-hmm. was, uh, I think, the first uh, Godard I had the opportunity to see in the theater, and it was like freshman year of college. I was giddy as all hell. And I was like, I I don't know how often like this opportunity is going to be available, and it just blew me the fuck away right away. Yeah, I remember seeing it like uh, this was like such a fucking I was such a dweeb when <laughs> I was in college. 
uh it was the day that like one of the big marvels was opening uh not maybe it was infinity war uh they screened it at the arrow and i was just like some kids in my class were talking back going to infinity war i was like yeah i'm, I'm actually um i'm actually saying jean-luc godard's goodbye to language in 3d <laughs> i'm actually uh, saying goodbye to language i'm, I'm yeah, actually yeah. not coming to class today because i'm gonna go see jean-luc godard's goodbye to language in 3D. <laughs> it's kind of like uh godard's infinity war in a way it is you know it, uh, all, all your old friends are back <laughs> no uh this is just an abrasive fucking film yeah. filled with just like Everything you could ask for formally at this point of Godard just just going off, saying truly saying goodbye to language <laughs> as the characters in this film are communicating in ways that are inhuman, not inhumane, but like uh, alien kind of. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, he's able to reach this humanity mm-hmm. even in his dog like there's a detour where he's just following his dog roxy for like 20 minutes uh Mm. and it's filmed just as beautifully as the rest of this mixing all these different digital textures and cutting it very harshly Mm -hmm. uh and it's just one of the most like gorgeous and visually daring films i've ever seen yeah experimenting with 3d technology in like unlike any other i think the only thing this decade that comes close to that is like gemini man yeah Yeah. um but it's just insane honestly the shot of the decade for me might be the when it's the the two cameras split and you you can make the the cuts with your own eyes yeah Yeah. that is insane i i remember someone telling me that was and i was like yeah this film's gonna give me a headache (laughs) you know what it did and it was worth it i i like my head did hurt this is an abrasive movie that if you're trying to keep up with everything it's doing you you, you got to give up yeah. after a while because it's exhausting, but it's also just immensely pleasurable. You know, it, mm-hmm. it's I think I, I forgot what I think I said this about film socialism earlier, uh, where it is asking you to kind of do a lot of work, but it's also on a very base level just so pleasurable yeah i mean he gives one up for the bozos the dumb guys like me there's a lot of shitting and farting oh yeah in this one as well i think it's like a conversation between where it's a like couple while a guy is shitting just taking a dump <laughs> yeah and the audio mix in like oh, five point one you know get the shit soaring across the room <laughs> yeah this is godard's magic eye book you know just a lot of fun illusions to look at you know but you kind of have to work to you know shift your eyes but it's like the dirty one that you buy like downtown where it's like the flip book with the uh guy contorting his penis yeah you seen that i know but i'd like to check it out i I was walking around (laughs) with i was visiting a friend that went to berkeley and we were walking around and we went into this bookstore that like was half erotica pretty much but it didn't say anything about that it's just like damn they have a lot of porn here uh but one of them was this little flip book uh, where you flip it and a guy's just like twisting his penis all around. <laughs> it's called The Puppetry of the Penis. Look out for it. That's this week's recommend- book recommendation. <laughs> book corner alert. Um, I think Godard would be okay with that endorsement. Oh, yeah. <laughs> let's, get it, let's FaceTime him in. Yeah, but in terms of just like old masters moving forward with the filmmaking technology of the future... Um, what else could you want? Yeah. You know? <laughs> Godard, please stay alive. Godard, please make at least one more. Just one more. <laughs> stay healthy. Eat your greens and stay healthy, please. Oh God. Yeah, I mean, he's smoking cigars still, like, every day. But that probably just means smoking's good for you. No, yeah, totally. I think so. All, all, all I got to say is that all the ballers I know in life chief down cigars. 
Chief and down <laughs> fat stone. Godard, baller of the week. <laughs> Extended clip smoke show of the week. <laughs> <laughs> um, before we go into the top five, uh, let's hear from another friend of ours. So the best film of the decade is Fast and Furious 7, uh, the classic Jason Statham film, uh, which perfectly represents the power of the franchise as a cultural standpoint of 21st century fiction. Not only does it peak action cinema in the modern West uh, with its incredible cutting and visual effects sequences, uh, with the beautiful breathtaking sequences from the plane with the car parachutes or the Dubai set piece where one car goes out of one building and into another building and then out of that building into yet another building, which is classic cinema at its finest, uh, to like fucking Jason Statham and The Rock having a goddamn fist fight in a terrible LA condominium and then destroying each other to Vin Diesel and Jason Statham breaking goddamn concrete to a goddamn machine gun firing a magic helicopter that magics managed to track every person on the planet based off of their phone print or Kurt Russell with dual pistols fucking shooting motherfuckers throughout the entirety of a random Middle Eastern warehouse to all the goddamn action spectacle you can ever imagine but the most important thing is it's testament to Paul Walker um, with the final sequence that, that is uh, set to see you again with the edit um, of all the footage uh, from his various films in the series uh being basically the final send-off to someone who has meant the world to all of us, all of the fans of the series, all the fans of the franchise, um, to all the people that have worked on these movies over the last uh, 15 years, um, they got to give him a goodbye. Even though they never got to say a proper goodbye to him in life, they managed to create one to him, a permanent monument to his brilliance in cinema. And nothing makes me cry more than that. So I gotta go Furious 7 here. Um, I would go Tron Legacy, but I already did an episode on that. So Furious 7 it is. <laughs> Thank you so much to Logan. Uh, he, I don't think he said his name in there. Yeah, Logan Kenny. Uh, mm-hmm. He did a great episode with us about Knight of Cups. And uh, yeah, I haven't seen any of the Fast movies from this yeah. decade. Furious? I think the last one I saw was like, maybe it was Fast and the Furious. Isn't that like one of the sequels? That's the fourth one, Yeah, I think. Furious 7 is, I really like Furious 7, and I uh, I think maybe, you know, some people might be skeptical of, like, the see you again type ending, but I really I really do enjoy that ending, because it is, like, kind of, like, weirdly didactic, first off, and I love di- didacticism, or whatever, <laughs> however you say it, and, yeah, there's some fun set pieces, like the Dubai set piece, lots of fun, um, that, the, and the next one just wasn't as good, so it just made me appreciate Furious 7 more, so... To Paul Walker, until we see you again. Salute. Thanks for that last piece. <laughs> um, let's take a quick break before the top five. And we're back on extended clip. Uh, back from a classic extended clip bathroom break. We love to take breaks. How do you guys like the bathroom here? It's nice. It's like, a little small. I like the, the button, like the flush buttons rather than the traditional handle. It's very oh, European. Oh, yeah, the flush yeah. buttons are nice. Yeah. I was like, damn, I just want to... I just want to <laughs> just make, let it go. Yeah, I just want to make more waste so I could flush <laughs> flush it down. The one thing I don't like is the window because if someone's walking up to the door, sure. they can fucking see. But your no, dick. it's like it's uh, the hedge covers it. It's like no one walking by. Like yeah, but if someone opens that front thing to come to the door, true. Plus they gonna plus, see. Yeah, plus if you have a dick as big as mine, they'll <laughs> definitely see it through the hedges. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I don't I don't mind a bathroom window. Just a fucking come on. See it if you want. Come and see. Nothing to hide. <laughs> Watch me naked. It's fine. <laughs> I just had such a weird flashback to staying here like four years ago, maybe, and throwing up in that bathroom while listening to Michael Shannon on WTF. <laughs> <laughs> what did he say that was that bad? <laughs> I think it was an excess of Carl's Jr. the night before. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, number five is Stray Dogs by Simon Lang. I guess, I mean, just listen. Yeah, to listen the to the fucking podcast. We were a little sleepy on that True. one. We're more awake now, but it's slow cinema, so we should be sleepy. Also, yeah. I take back my Phantom Thread best ending of the decade. Yeah, this is way yeah, better. Stray yeah. Dogs best end. I mean, talk about something that earns its best ending title. Oh, yeah. Oh, also, I just looked down, and you haven't seen the best ending of the decade. We'll get to it. Oh. Uh, but, yes, oh, Stray yeah, Dogs is, like... Listen to our episode on it if you haven't. Um, not saying it's like a great episode or whatever, but yeah. like, no, it's a great episode. No, it's all good. Our, it's good. All the episodes yeah. of this podcast. We talk about episodes. we are your friends on there too. I was a little self conscious about the first half of that episode. I like the second. Half. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think I think we it's can, good. we can just talk about the podcast episode <laughs> yeah. instead of Stray Dogs. Uh, um, no, Stray Dogs, Simon Lang. Come on, that's it, r- it's a film, a small film about a small family unit that is ever expansive in how the length allows it to unfold both aesthetically and ideologically i guess or more like thematically rather yeah uh and yeah you're using pace to unlock the cinema (laughs) and uh i don't know no one does it like him other than someone else that we're about to talk about yeah and like it's it's great because it's like there's a lot of movies about like the the world like ending or whatever it's like the world has ended (laughs) yeah Yeah. it is is like it's it's over this is it yeah it's fucked i mean that's like a a fascination that a lot of great directors have done this decade is just like the utter decay in late capitalism yeah i mean what i said about mountains made departs third act being like the best example of capitalist alienation uh that is like in a very didactic way that's like you know detached and uh this is kind of the flip side of that coin. Yeah. Uh, it is the, you know, realistically displayed while still being very expressionistic in his filmmaking techniques. Yeah. Uh, very realistically displayed version of the abject poverty uh, that a capitalist society leaves uh, so many of its people in. And it's a very bleak film. And it's also one of the most beautiful, moving things I've ever seen, for sure. Uh, come on. There's uh, two people staring at a mural for 15 minutes. Yeah. Uh, it's How can you get more cinematic than that? It made me realize that most of my life I've been staring at a wall. <laughs> it's a big one for the wall starers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe the opposite tone of Stray Dogs. Opposite pacing. Oh. Uh, opposite type of audio mix but a a film that is also very dense in the audio category is our number four film it's harmony curtain's spring breakers 2012 mm-hmm. uh malcolm I'm, I'm sure you've got something to say oh, about my this fucking one god it's so it's so amazing it's so amazing it's kind of like the this kind of like the movie that got me into movies you know <laughs> it's kind of uh I, I think i really love this movie so much and it's number one on my personal list because it um kind of made me realize that I think it's one of my favorite movies because it made me realize depiction isn't 
endorsement. Yeah. And the way this movie was advertised is kind of amazing and it kind of adds to the movie mm-hmm. where it's, you know, it's supposed to be the spring break romp. And it is. You get, you have your fun, but, you know, it turns it on its head in a way that's like, it's not like kind of like maybe some of the other movies on this list where it goes, it's still bleak, but like it's still. Um, it's playfully still, bleak. It's playfully bleak and it succumbs to its excesses in a very like hedonistic way that, you know, speaks to, I don't know, maybe a certain part of me. Plus it has Gucci Mane in it. Come on. Come on. What other film can say that? Yeah. Like Gucci Mane does not make a cameo. Gucci Mane is a very central character in this film. Uh, like he's sidelined until the third act, but mm-hmm. that's what, like he is what propels the finale of the film. You know, uh, it's beautiful. It's a great, you know, taking the temperature of the youth now, you know, yeah. uh, and Harmony Corinne getting these former Disney star girls, uh, Disney channel girls, yeah. uh, to, you know, indulge in depravity and the way that the first like 30, 40 minutes before they get to spring break is cut is brilliant maybe my favorite editing of the decade the way that it's shifting back and forth through time and you have the audio tracks of multiple scenes kind of going at the Mm -hmm. same time that aren't matching up quite to the image and then once in a while it will be an audio and visual match uh but like i don't know the way that they prepare uh to rob the diner and then uh them driving away after just it's so fleeting but every frame is so beautiful and it's like you're never gonna get it back no matter how many times you rewatch it just like these characters are never gonna get back these experiences you know uh it feels like it's slipping away even though you can fucking rewind it and restart it i mean someone who's you know kind of out of favor at this point you know james franco giving bad man james franco bad, james franco basically playing riffraff i mean what you said kind of like taking the cultural ki- climate is something that harmony kareen i think is an expert at oh yeah and something you know kind of like and this has been talked about much more intelligently than the way I'm about to talk about, mm-hmm. but kind of like how the kind of like how, you know, white people, white teenagers have like co-opted these black aesthetics through like a steady diet of rap music and oh, stuff yeah. like that and have co-opted them to in a way that is actually destructive to the black community in a way where you see these characters, you know, kill loads and loads of black people, you yeah. know, and it really, you know, kind of speaks to how that kind of, kind of sneaks in it's never a conscious decision these characters makes but it's kind of the cultural ephemera leads them to this point and i mean it causes them to do you know not even just the appropriation but just the indulgence and the excess yeah leads to much grimmer and darker stuff much like in welcome to new york and uh i mean this film has like an opposite visual approach to welcome to new york this one is so like warm and just soaked and sweaty and Mm -hmm. also you know anytime the sun's not out the neon is drowning it you Mm -hmm. know and uh the images are as loud as the soundtrack and it's beautiful i don't know there's so many scenes that just stick with me so hard like Mm -hmm. when they're singing uh, (laughs) while franco's playing piano and twirling the guns uh in a ballet fashion as the sun is going down one of the most beautiful scenes of all time and then Another one is uh, right after they're singing another Britney song outside of a liquor store at night. They're then recounting the events of the diner 
mm-hmm. uh, to the Selena Gomez character who was not there, uh, who sat out the robbery. Mm-hmm. And it's cutting back to that long take going through the diner and they're like reenacting uh the audio track is them telling the story and uh the dialogue matching up as they say it uh you know in the visual presentation in the flashback Mm -hmm. them screaming at selena gomez uh pointing finger guns at her the way that they were threatening the people in the diner with hammers and stuff is one of the most tense and just like I don't know, indescribable fucking scenes. It gets me every time, and I still don't quite know what to make of it. I mean, for me, something that really sticks with me about it is that it's gregarious and like over the top at points, but there's a lot of truth in the way, um, like, sort of uh, middle class kind of white girls can like linger in like a depravity. Like, I definitely knew in college like uh, uh, women who were sort of modeling their personalities off of this. And like the film or particularly like the first uh, part before they get to spring break where it's just like these, I mean, is it a dorm room where they're in? It's like you, it's like dark and like Mm -hmm. disgusting. And it's just, it feels like, I don't know. Uh, going to a new drug dealer's house for the first time and just being like everything is unsettling and dark and strange and uncomfortable but there's a familiarity in the dirtiness of it all and they're sparking that loud loud absolutely yeah. throughout the whole movie i love Kush movies that classic. smoke weed I, yeah i think now that we're past two and a half hours into the pod we can say that this is a kush class <laughs> light one up to this absolutely oh my smoke god them if you got them um i left the q a with harmony corinne to smoke weed before this movie like uh because it was trash humpers then spring breakers yeah so i watched trash humpers and i brought a little dupe a little doink and uh, yeah. stepped outside the Egyptian during the terrible Q and A. Sparked that. Had a great time rewatching Spring Breakers on thirty five millimeter. Beautiful. I've never seen it on thirty five millimeter. It's, I need to do that. We got to get them to play it again for yeah. us. Totally. Yeah. I mean, boys I th- only. <laughs> I, th- I think a, a great way to unlock this movie is to realize that his movie before this was about people who fuck trash. <laughs> like, it, like it's 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 like the connection between trash humpers. Spring Breakers and Beach Bum, while the connection to Spring Breakers and Beach Bum might be a little bit more evident, but he's kind of like... Trash Humpers is very similar to Spring Breakers yeah, in a no, lot of ways. You put it that way, Spring Breakers is the perfect link between those two, I think. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man. Uh, what a great film. We gotta do some Corinne on Dude, the pod. Corinne's, yeah. oh, hell yeah. Corinne's probably my favorite at yeah. this point. Um, number three is Uncle Boon Me, who can recall his past lives by A Pitchapong Where a Sethical mm-hmm. from 2010. Wow. That's a good one. That's a good movie, in my yeah. opinion. <laughs> that, that floored me. I, I, I watched this for the first time about two days ago, and not being as familiar with his work, this is, like, I think the third movie I watched with him. We did Syndromes in a Century for the podcast, mm-hmm. and I watched Tropical Malady before that, and it didn't really connect to me. But I like Syndromes, and then this just completely clicked for me. Like, it really put his work, you know, as a whole in, like, the scope and... I mean, it's just, it really, like, out of any movie I've watched recently, it really just screams, like, masterpiece. Like, yeah. just some of the stuff he's doing, like, one of my f- potential favorite sequences of the decade is the catfish and the princess scene. Oh, my goodness. Which, like, 
I don't know. He makes this like his movies are slow, but he makes decisions that are so exciting. Yeah. Um, it is kind of like between that and the the boon me creature itself it is something of a monster movie yeah. more so than the back half of tropical malady mm-hmm. uh and it is related you know boon me is mentioned in tropical malady yeah uh for the for those keeping continuity of the apichapong where it's at the cool extended universe <laughs> uh yeah i haven't seen this movie in like four years or something like that um it's incredible though so many of the scenes have stuck with me obviously the the dinner or you know the eating scene where Mm -hmm. he appears and they're at night uh outside the house eating when uncle boon me appears um that has always stuck with me just the frankness of the introduction yeah uh and it's like a pitch subtle humor is always there and when i say subtle humor i'm not saying like he's like a high-minded humorist who reads the new yorker <laughs> it's that he's in he's operating in the slow cinema mode and also just throwing you some very base humor you know mm-hmm. and i think it's really fun just like the fun timing of the cuts you know and uh, also there's a electronic mosquito zapper that is used for like two seconds in this movie yeah. that i would love to get my hands on. <laughs> <laughs> go to the dollar store they're pretty <laughs> um for me uncle boon me can recall his past lives but i really have a hard time recalling this film because <laughs> it's been uh quite a few years um, but to sort of, I don't know, to speak to what I do remember and why it has had such a lasting impression for me is uh, we've talked a lot on this podcast about fuck lore. We hate like uh, sort of mysticism, but this approaches it like the I think the slow cinema style and integrating that in with like the weird uh, creatures in this. I think it it like it demystifies it but also just like by lingering on some of the more strange elements of it it just leaves you with more lingering questions i mean it's it's so unexplainable in such a pleasurable way i think the the fact that he keeps you guessing in sort of sense and it's like the stuff that you're guessing at it's not like Oh, it's like, well, was that the killer or something yeah. like that? It's, yeah, it's, it's it's almost at times minute details, but like, you think that you know you're getting like lost in some sort of confusion, but then you realize that's kind of that's kind of the mood he's trying to create. That's yeah. kind of the whole. Uh, that's the backdrop of the movie, and like, there's some stuff in here that I don't I don't really get, and it's not really related, and I don't even really think it is related to like the last ten minutes of the movie where we mm. see a monk visit, you know, two women in a hotel room. Yeah. And then uh sees them, you know, outside of himself and like there's like a duality of the people there. And I don't know if I explained that well. No, it's yeah. very hard to explain. Yeah. I'm I'm having trouble. Yeah. <laughs> like it's, you're saying these things, I'm seeing the images in my head. I can't put them to work. And hey, maybe this is either an attestment to our critical faculties or his <laughs> filmmaking, but some of this stuff just can't be explained. You're just going to have to watch it yourself. I've heard of better off dead, but better not said. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Yeah, it's like I've, a <laughs> it's like a comedy bang bang joke. <laughs> I've heard better not said. Uh, I was going to. I was. Give I was, me head. Better give me. You better give me head. Right said I, Fred. Right said Fred. I have heard of that. <laughs> you know what joke I was trying to make that was not could never see the connection to it like a more than words joke because that yeah. song in the love guru more than words yeah, yeah yeah i was trying to connect those two somehow hmm. 
Well, maybe next time. I like that scene in The Love Guru where they sing more It's than very words. chill. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it's a nice, nice <laughs> relax from the comedy. <laughs> I have, I have, it really is. I've looked up that scene on my own <laughs> multiple times just to watch it. And let me tell you, I found, I don't know why I didn't send this to you guys. I found like some, um, some guy who photoshopped himself in as the Indian man and singing the duet with Mike Myers. So it made it look like he was singing more than words. And he inserted his own vo- own vocals, so it's mixed to it, it sounded sounding like he's singing more than words with Mike Myers, and and it's done pretty well to where like I it took me a few seconds to notice like oh wait this isn't like the scene this is a fan edit, but yeah, shout out to the fan edits, shout out to the fans, the way of the future. <laughs> Yeah. Number two contains the best ending of the decade, and it's Twin Peaks: The Return by David Lynch. I haven't seen it. I feel so and Mark left Frost out. And, and Mark, Mark Frost. Frost. It of is course. a TV show, and its creators yeah. are its authors. It's not a movie, okay? So maybe we should take it off the list. Do you remember <laughs> that debate? Yeah. What is yeah. that? What is it even like? All right, it's movie. It's TV. What's the end result of that? Who fucking cares? Yeah, it's, it's great. It's great. It's it's art, dude. This is not a movie podcast. This is an art podcast. <laughs> yeah. You say tomato. I say tomato. You say it's a TV. Whatever. Yeah, a <laughs> painting can be a film. A good DM can be a film. Uh, there are lots of things yeah, that no, are one, cinema. Good uh, ball game. One of yeah. our ballots included the very concept of pornography as one of its top ten films of the decade. So, you know, anything can be a film. That's respectable and honest. And honest. Uh, this... I'm trying to think. It's 18 hours long. I've seen it like four or five times. I'm trying to think if I've watched more porn or this. <laughs> Just since it came out, not in the decade. Okay, Just I was going to say, doing the math on that shit. <laughs> well, I'm only watching porn in like five second clips at a time <laughs> until I come. I watch like two minutes of it. I can't. I'm a video hopper. <laughs> but That's just me. <laughs> And David Lynch is something of a, a hopper in this, you know, jumping all around our great United States. Uh, a film about the the great land we call our own. No, um, yeah, it's flipping between, or not flipping, but cutting between uh, Twin Peaks and South Dakota and New York. And, uh, you know, you get a flashback to some testing. And is it in New Mexico? Um. Yeah. New Mexico. The episode eight. Yeah, because that's the yeah. uh, the the A bomb. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They uh, leave Twin Peaks. What's going on? <laughs> oh shit! Malcolm hasn't seen it. Uh, uh Yeah, I don't want to get too spoilery because you just did watch uh, Fire Walk with me. I don't want to ruin it yeah. for my See, friend. We we all mock spoilers, but then when it's when it's the real when good it's something shit. I actually care about my friend's enjoyment yeah. of. Yeah. No, we can talk about it. <laughs> but I feel like I don't know. For me, I mean, while this isn't my favorite uh, film of the decade. I think this is like the defining American work of the decade just because of the 18 hour scope encompasses uh, so much and it is so unlike what you would expect like a return to Twin Peaks would be. I mean, this is just pure like with each Lynch feature, I feel like it's more like unfiltered, uncut just straight from the source, his vision, and this is just insane. Yeah. I mean, the way he's able to use length in this, you know, he's not quite as slow as a Pitch of Pong or Simon Lang, but 
there are some very, very slow scenes in this where, you know, maybe four or five lines of dialogue takes two minutes to get delivered. And relishing in the duration is probably one of the best aspects of this. Um, I loved the tonal control that Lynch had over this. I mean, obviously, he directed all 18 episodes. He fought for that. Uh, and, you know, I don't know. There's something about the hold that Lynch takes over me when it works. You know, his lesser films, I still like a good amount. But when he's on his shit, which is this, Firewalk With Me, and um, what's it called? The Straight Story. Those are the three where, like, I'm literally transported. <laughs> like, I'm no longer in my fucking bed watching it. Because I think it, it's not that it's immersive. It's very stylized and very surreal. Uh, and, and not realistic at all. Uh, but everything that he's bringing to your attention, aesthetically, narratively, thematically, uh, is just like occupies my brain so densely that I can't think about anything else for so long. Each of these episodes I watched again, you know, like Tarantino with the newsroom. I watched it twice the night it came out and again before the next one aired. And I've seen it again a few times since then. And it's like, I can't just devolve to naming my favorite parts, but you know, Otis Redding playing over fucking Ed and Norma, like their scene at the diner towards, I think episode 15 or so. Yeah. Like, come on. I like, it's been there since the start Lynch's obsession with music and like his way of using a melody to, you know, completely either go against or fully embrace the emotions that are on screen. Uh, you know, blue velvet obviously is a great way of showcasing this, but I don't know. The use of music here is so varied because it's like it's either that Otis Redding thing where he's trying to just tug at your heartstrings as hard as Lynch has ever done. And then like the goofy fucking uh, song that's playing. Some people thought it was genuinely badass, but the introduction of uh, the bad Cooper of Mr. C. Yeah, uh, that like not dubstep, but electronic remix of, I think, like a chromatic song or some bullshit like that. First of all, I'm going to say, I don't like the fucking music that people play at the Roadhouse. I, I, I am like not the Roadhouse a, music. I am not a fan of any <laughs> of those Do you like the bands. Nine Inch Nails? I think the Nine Inch Nails performance is wonderful. Sorry, spoiler. Oh, fuck. And I think <laughs> that the fucking ZZ Top needle drop is the best musical moment in the whole 18 hours, but... Uh, if you haven't seen it, each episode, the end credits, uh, it goes to the Roadhouse. Almost uh, each episode. Almost there each episode. Yeah. It starts off every episode. Like yeah. That. Yeah. Uh, it might only be like 12 of the episodes that end like this, actually. But it ends with a performance by a band at the Roadhouse. And it's like, yeah, David Lynch likes kind of shitty pitchfork core uh, like <laughs> uh, indie rock stuff that I'm not that into. But whatever. And there's an Eddie Vedder performance that you have to sit through as well. Not to rag on like one of my favorite things of all time, but yeah, yeah, those musical choices, not so hot, but at least they let you reflect on what you've watched for the last hour. But anyway, uh, Kyle McLaughlin pulling so much weight in this, just one of the... Yeah, like three different roles. In yeah. This. It's insane. And each of them is so committed. It's like you miss Cooper, classic Coop, until you realize what he's pulling off yeah and it's like not that big of a deal well, and then you get that moment of satisfaction and it's like oh yeah i forgot i was waiting for that well missing classic cooper and again to 
uh, not reveal too much to Malcolm. <laughs> uh, cover yours, darling. Uh, they, <laughs> um, Malcolm's like, doing earmuffs. <laughs> go outside and you guys one. Um, but the Ed and Norma stuff that you talk about, um, and along with like waiting for real Cooper, there is so much of this like toying around with notion of sequels and like returning to uh, a piece of work where it's like many points in this. And I mean, overall, I mean, the people who really hate this, I feel like uh, just love like the goofy 90s aesthetic of like Twin Peaks and mm-hmm. were never really on board with the broader David Lynch project. But like it is subverting like so much of what you want a Twin Peaks return to be, but giving you something so much better. And I feel like it speaks to this decade that is just filled with uh, sequels, reiterations, coming back to something. And the return is doing such a a bold statement by like uh, defying like our decade that is so obsessed with nostalgia returning to the past and being like, and like broadly speaking into the face of the or broadly going against that and being like, no, you cannot return. Like you, some things are the same. There is some sense of satisfaction you can get from coming back to memories of the past, but it's entirely different now. And you need to um, embrace that. And it's like, yeah, he gives you pleasure out of the very basic, really coming out of television more than film, just like payoffs of yeah. long-time relationships and stuff. But it's always it always has that tinge to it, you know? Like the Ed and Norma thing. You also watch Norma talk to the businessman who's trying to corporatize her diner for five minutes in the episode before that, you know? And, like, you have all of these rekindling of relationships or whatever. Not even really. Like, between the viewer and the character, rekindling of relationships. Yeah. Uh, And, like, you have the the Bobby moment when he sees the picture of Laura. And it's, you know, the weight of the last 25 years hits you at that moment for all of these characters who, you know, had this insane traumatic thing happen in their community that really affected, you know, one person and one family more than anyone else. But, you know, it also obviously had an effect not just on this community, but then like the FBI and like all of these greater systems that are affected by this kind of like unable to perfectly track down force. Uh, And then we talked about the ending. I don't want to talk about it uh, in specifics because of Malcolm Uh, earmuffs, darling. Uh, (laughs) But... I don't know, man. If that's not one of the most, like, I can't even, it's it's so pleasurable in the way that it twists the knife in your nostalgia wound, you know? It's just, it's so sad and beautiful and also just amazing. I don't know. I mean, they're just like, I like, so much of this is so emotionally affecting, like, I, you brought up Straight Story, and that's another, like, Lynch movie where I'm just, like, crying the whole time. And, like, in this, there is, like, such a sense of longing. And by not giving you what, not giving you all of what you want, um, but just the little bits, the little satisfaction, it makes it all the more meaningful. Yeah. And just so many moments of this uh, just are heartbreaking. Oh, man, he is so like clearly trying to make you suffer at some points and also just like tease you while he's at it. Like, God, I fucking, the fucking kid getting mauled by a car. Yeah. (laughs) That scene is 
just like the most like hallmark ass shit that David Lynch has ever done. You get that little moment right before where fucking Harry Dean Stanton even looks at the kid and he's like looking at nature. Oh, and yeah. And you get the 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 bus driver or the uh, the big rig driver give him the go ahead, you know. Yeah. Uh, and it's so sad, but it's like also has this little tinge of irony that is really teased out in the reaction shots. You know, mm-hmm. you get all these onlookers at the scene and they're like overacting more than anyone in yeah, all no. of the return. And it, it looks like the people acting in The Happening by Shyamalan, uh, an amazing film. Mm-hmm. Uh, it reminds me of that more than anything. And it's like this weird distancing effect that is so fucking uncomfortable I mean, and it only all i can do is horror. laugh yeah i had to laugh at it i felt like a monster but i was laughing like fucking de niro in cape fear <laughs> after a child gets run over by a car because of the reaction shots i just think like there's the way he subverts like what would be a traditional reaction like the one of the images that stands out to me the most that I feel like is in a similar vein to that is um, Bobby is in the diner. I forget what happens. It's I don't think it's the child getting hit by the car. It's the woman no. just oh. laying on the horn, yeah. screaming. <gasps> we have that, to get... Why is this happening? Oh my God. That and then the fucking daughter, her niece getting sick. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh my god and there's like a kid and a gun goes off and like just all of this chaos and like bobby just rising to the moment not like as a real hero as you would see in other movies or tv but just as the guy who has to fucking calm people down and like direct traffic like and i mean all of those disturbing elements like are exaggerated versions of like legitimate like contemporary problems like the addict um, in the uh, in the room, just like ignoring her child. One one nine, yeah, yeah. It's it's insane how like how he's firing on all cylinders in this. And also, Rust Hamblin coming back with the fucking Alex Jonesian uh, reimagining of Doctor Jacoby. Yeah, the hold that he has on some of the citizens of Twin Peaks <laughs> and beyond via the internet is amazing. And kind of regressive in, like, how scared of the internet Lynch seems, you know, through that. Like, and how people's messaging gets out. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's also shown really sweetly, too. Uh, And also, Jerry Horn is a number one Chiba Hawk. He is just (laughs) baked off his gourd, has a legal dispensary. (laughs) It's fucking sick. Uh, That's that. Speaking of the Kush, number one, Inherent Vice by Paul Thomas Anderson. Malcolm, why don't you talk? All right. So it's about this detective, right? He likes smoking <laughs> weed. He likes thinking about his ex-girlfriend. He likes, uh, and there's a case he has to investigate. And in, in this case, there's a lot of twists and turns. And you might say, where's this going? Is this, what's, you know, he should, he should just solve the crime and be done with it. But, you know, the crime is never done with him. So that's how I describe that movie. There, um, I forgot to mention this with Phantom Thread, but I think this uh, it comes out again for PTA with Inherent Vice, where this is something where it's like I watched this in the theater when it first came out, and I was like pretty like I don't want to say lukewarm. I thought it was a good time, but it was like okay, I really like I I didn't get what was going on, and I was like I like this, but it's all right. 
and I gave it some time, and each time I returned to it, like, you get more of a comprehensive understanding of the plot. You're able to, like, see what's going on. But that really doesn't matter. It's just, like, faded. I mean, it's faded in the sense where, like, this movie is the clearest depiction of being stoned I think I have ever seen. But, like, also with that, it's, like, faded, like, remembering the past. And so much of this movie, and, like, to, to digress a little bit, it's like a perfect adaptation of like an amazing Pinchon novel. Oh my god, yeah. I, I'm not the reader of the three of us, but I have read the book. And uh, I think what PTA does to kind of make it work on a basic film narrative level is really smart, you know, uh, with what he does with uh, Sordelege. Is that how you even pronounce it? Uh, the Joanna Newsom character who becomes like the voiceover and kind of the voice of God in the movie while just a character in the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of it's weird, the specifics that he leaves in versus takes out, you know, but it's great. And it's uh, it's very like, I don't know, the faded thing. It's like these faded memories that are being cut against the other side of his brain that's like rattling around these conspiracies and uh, yanking at these yarns that aren't putting anything together quite right. Uh, And he just has so much flowing through his head at all times with like all of these conspiracies that he has are based in truth. (laughs) Like the FBI took out the black Panthers and that is the basis of a lot of his, you know, that's a lot of his ramblings, you know, uh, just from one little yarn of the plot that takes up so much of his head and like just the way that uh as they refer to it as vertical integration you know the dentistry slash heroin business which is just like yeah that's what big business does (laughs) no yeah it's like paranoid and schizophrenic and you're never like quite sure like who's like in charge and like what's going on but i feel like that's a perfect like way of navigating sort of like contemporary uh society and just like i don't know not to 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 delve too much in like epstein conspiracy bullshit stuff but it is like that broader understanding of like the elites that kind of control the world you're always somewhat aware that like there are powers at play beyond the scope of your understanding and you're able to scratch the surface a little bit but like you'll go fucking insane trying to like figure out the complete machinations of what's at play oh man i fucking love that the setup uh when he gets taken in like early on when he goes and visits the chick planet massage at the uh the new real estate development and just gets lured in by pussy like he knows he knows he's there for work but come on (laughs) fellas Uh, it's free pizza yeah (laughs) when hong chow fucking (laughs) pops out of the fucking (laughs) painting of the girl's vagina (laughs) one of the great character entrances uh and then like gets knocked out and wakes up and like the whole fucking squad (laughs) is lined up with bigfoot and bigfoot played by josh brolin one of the ultimate dirtbag cop performances <laughs> just so amazing and like so rigid and detached but still has that slightest sense of humanity yeah. uh when he's either having his kid pour him a drink or his wife's yelling at him to get off the phone <laughs> oh my god when his wife yells at fucking doc because it's like <laughs> all the, the psychologist bills yeah <laughs> 
I mean, do, yeah, Josh Brolin's character is an, an amazing character, just to the detail that he's like a SAG member who yeah. like, <laughs> acts as an extra in cop shows and is like really attached to like this cop personality he has. It's yeah. really all he has. And then, you know, kind of how it all ends where it's, he kind of uh, detaches himself from that a little bit or just like he has a brief digression from it. Yeah. And it's just, it seems psychotic. Like he's, he's so used to that. No, but it's, it's weird because that last encounter between them, if you think about what it's calling back to earlier yeah. in the story, it is kind of normal because like yeah. uh, the first time B- Bigfoot sees him at home, he's like, uh, he says, Bigfoot, oh, why didn't you kick my door down like usual? You know? Uh, and then that's how he greets him the last time. It's yeah. like business is fucking that's usual, true. but I'm also going to eat your entire tray of kush, <laughs> 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 which is one of the funniest fucking things <laughs> ever. Uh, totally out of left field for yeah. PTA, I got to say, because PTA is super funny. That is not how he directs comedy, though, usually. It's like a very, uh, like, centered shot, reverse shot that seems more like a Coen Brothers gag. Uh, and I don't know, just the way that he's able to bend his form to match the material here is what makes it his best film, I think. Mm-hmm. Because I, I love all of Paul Thomas Anderson's screenplays. Eh, I don't love all of them, but yeah. I love him as a writer. Yeah. Uh, but I think that him just like exploring another text through the tools of cinema kind of unlocked something in him that we have never seen before. And maybe we won't see until he adapts something else again. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think he's just like so focused on meaning making through images and through framing and camera movement and cutting. And at the same time, just like the streamlined efficiency of getting through some of these dialogue scenes where they're, you know, twisting these yarns of conspiracy and crime that maybe don't really matter, uh, but you have to hear them no matter what. <laughs> yeah, I would. I would love to see PTA do another pinch on. Oh yeah, that would be fucking amazing. But to speak to like we we talk about like the the the, the like the paranoid aspects and like the um, conspiratorial stuff, um, but it's weirdly like tender and like uh, there's like that level of like ir- irony there. But, like, there are so many, like, genuine, like, sensitive moments where Doc uh, is with Shasta and, like, just the the sexuality of when Shasta comes back and they, like, fuck again. Oh, my God. That, that is, scene like, is, that yeah. scene, who boy, yeah. oh. fellas, put a book over your lap. Speaking <laughs> about that Tex Avery wolf. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think, yeah, the amalgamation of emotions, like, displayed in this movie gives this it a, like an unbeatable tone like an, kind of a tone that is kind of unmatchable just because it's kind of like i don't know just not a random amalgamation but just all that kind of coming together makes like a certain elixir that would be yeah. hard to recreate yeah like you get that scene early on his first one with reese witherspoon where they meet on a public bench mm-hmm. and like he tries to put her ar- his arm around her and she yeah. like backs off and she's like how many joints did you have today yeah uh which is a very funny line uh, <laughs> <laughs> i'd have to go check the logbook. <laughs> uh but then like you, you see their relationship there and it seems really perfunctory and like kind of sad that he's even involved with her. Yeah. Uh, and he's like really probably just using her for work and sex more than actual love. And then you see them back at the apartment. Uh, yeah. Like you get the great phone call where she tells him to wash his feet uh, and she'll pick up a pizza 
and they're just like eating pizza and smoking weed and watching TV Mm -hmm. and they seem pretty much in love, you know? And it's like, I don't know the way that PTA is able to depict that tenderness within kind of just like a working side relationship uh, Mm -hmm. while he's still looking for Shasta is Mm -hmm. incredible. And like the depths of character that he's able to get out of this. I mean, fucking owen wilson when oh, they're smoking Owens wilson's performance is so good yeah when they're smoking under the fucking bridge or whatever and it's all fogged out it's just a completely gray background with the fog moving and you know they're blowing the loud as well and then also i mean come on martin short oh, oh yeah the god like <laughs> yeah. one of the greatest comedic performances at least like for a scene mm-hmm. uh that i've seen in quite some time um yeah, I don't know. Just watch it. <laughs> I can't do it justice describing it. Smoke, smoke some weed. Yeah. And watch no, it. I know some yeah. people who are uh, who are sober living and love this movie. True, yeah. And it's it's not just for the stoners. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Paul is not a stoner. Yeah, he he seems like he is through the making of this movie. Mm-hmm. But if you listen to his WTF multiple times, like I have, you'll know <laughs> that he said, "I don't I don't smoke weed. I'm not like a stoner." <laughs> Well, that just shows what a great filmmaker he is. He could find the great appreciation for weed and put it on text. It's very true. And we're not just putting this number one because no. we smoke weed. But like, I would, I, I would it have, helps. I would have, see, I love Inherent Vice. Probably my number two weed smoking movie of the decade. I'd probably have to go with Mac and Devin go to high school, <laughs> which, which starts with a CGI joint telling you, Motherfucker, you better smoke some weed to this shit or else it won't be good. So it's like that, you know, ultimately, whether, you know, for the good and the bad, that is the weed smoking movie of the decade. Imagine how many shitty critics started their review by talking about that scene and being like, well, I do not partake. (laughs) I do not smoke weed and I do not drink. In fact, I don't touch tobacco either. So... uh, yeah, it's kind of a failed bit, but it's okay. Mm, yeah, yeah. Um, it's I was a long just, episode. <laughs> no, nah, it's all good. I'm just thinking about Young, Wild, and Free now. That's a good song. Yeah, <laughs> great. Hey, great album that came out of the the movie, though. Really? No, well, that's where not really, but yeah. that's where that song's I from. Know. I just remember that song. Yeah. Yeah, my mom liked that song because they would play <laughs> play it on the radio a lot. So they would it, like they would just repeat other lo- like the way they censored the clean version instead of saying like so what we smoke weed it just repeats so what we go out like, <laughs> a song about going out a lot. <laughs> i love that so what we go out <laughs> so what we go out <laughs> yeah so what <laughs> oh god the basis of comedy reciting song lyrics at face value yeah two Wiz khalifa mentions in this episode gotta love it look i gotta say from this decade also the mixtape he did with Currency, How Fly, pretty, pretty good, fucking good. Mixtape of the decade choice. <laughs> <laughs> nah, Blue yeah. Dream and Lean. Oh, fuck. Blue Dream and Lean. What an amazing mixtape. Bands Make Her Dance. Bands Make Her Dance is maybe the song of the decade. Mm-hmm. Um, so true, too. Yeah. Bands will make her dance. So come with us on this journey through the past. <laughs> I was going to say something to fade into music, but um, we'll, we'll do a little plug action. Yeah. Uh, I'm at iPod underscore video. I'm at Bitchface Palace on Twitter. <laughs> I'm at Tall Boy Thin Legs. And we are at Extended Clip 69. And if you go on my letterboxed, uh, you will see the list with all the movies. But I'll put it in the info, too, mm-hmm. because I don't want to make you go to fucking letterboxed to look at the list. Um, yeah, email us, extendedclippodcast at gmail.com. Um, this was a long one, so thank you for listening. 
Maybe we'll split it into two parts. I'm it's not opposed to that. Yeah, two hours and fifty-eight minutes right now. Okay, Holy yeah, shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This yeah, is yeah. this is our Irishman. Let's let's break them off a piece. Any weird, uh, any other social media sites you guys want to plug besides Twitter? Like a oh my TikTok, yeah. Username on a form or I'm, a, a, I'm on Instagram with the same username. I'm trying to think. That's of not a, a weird social media yeah. site. I'm my on, TikTok is OG Larry Bird. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on Rate Your Music as Burnt Malcolm, a username I made when I was 13. Unironically, I am at on Rate Your Music. Uh, I think it's just slash Eddie Averill, my oh, personal last name. I have name. to add you, dude. I don't yeah, know yeah. I, I like just started going back on there. Yeah. Um, I won't say back because I don't want you to find my old account, but I just started <laughs> going on there for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah. See ya. Bye. Oh, Bye. thanks to all of our friends who submitted. Oh, yeah, thanks. We, could, we truly couldn't have done it without you. Yeah. Uh, bye. Howdy, dopers. We've got whatever you need. And remember, the sooner you get over here, the more there'll be left for you. So come on down to 4723 Sunset Boulevard. Uh, okay, I'm sorry. Who, who is it that talked to you? Uh, talk to you? She hung up. She's screaming at you. Stay away. of a postcard, Shasta should have chosen to remember that one day in the rain. It had stuck with Doc, too, even though it was late in their time together, when she was already halfway out the door. Now I'm going-